This is Nostril Talk with Pratt Chat. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Amazing. Um, this actually, you know, this is, I think someone asked us this question and I About just About nostrils? I'm Ben McKenzie. Welcome to Pratchett, the monthly Terry Pratchett Book Club podcast. Each month, we discuss one of Terry Pratchett's books with a special guest. This month, we're talking about small gods, or alternatively, the dangers of simony says. And our guest is the Reverend Doctor Avril Hannah Jones. Welcome, Avril. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's such a pleasure, Avril. You you've been reading Terry Pratchett for a long time. Yes, I was looking at dates of when they came out because I was reading some of the first ones. And yeah, now I'm feeling really old. Um, (laughs) (laughs) But uh, when I started at uni, Melbourne Uni, the Rowden White Library had a very good collection of them. I have such fond memories of them. I wonder if they still do. Yeah. yeah. Or if they update them. I was thinking about the Rowden White Library last episode because that's where I borrowed all of the Neil Gaiman comics that I first read. Yep. So, oh, such a, a wonderful lovely thing. library. Tell us a bit about yourself. What your background with fantasy and science fiction? Because you know, we we found you for Splendid Chaps as a guest because you'd been involved in some weird shenanigans. Yeah. So, um, I've been into fantasy and sci-fi since I was about eight, when a very nice primary school teacher gave me a copy of The Hobbit, Ooh. which was very good. I've said primary school teacher. Um, so I grew up reading Tolkien and C.S. Lewis and Marion Zimmer Bradley, you know, a whole lot of really traditional fantasy stuff. And then I got through a PhD by watching Buffy the Vampire Slayer. What? Yeah. <laughs> yep. I thanked Buffy in the acknowledgements of my PhD because, you know, life is really hard when you're doing that and watching her stake things was really helpful. And then um, the comedian Adam Hills thought that was hilarious when I came to see one of his shows because in the meantime I'd also become a Uniting Church minister, kind of accidentally. Um, and <laughs> so wandered into the wrong exam. <laughs> I was going to say, there's like surely there's like standards and exams and things. There are. There is so many steps you have to go through, and I kept waiting for them to say no. Right. Because, you know, I went through all these and went before all these panels and talked about myself and I kept waiting for them to say, no, go away, you're not the right sort of person. And they never did. And in the end, I was ordained and became a minister. Mm. Um, And so I was a minister who liked Buffy the Vampire Slayer and Adam Hills found that out and thought it hilarious. So he and I ended up creating a science fiction and fantasy church service and that's how you guys found me. Yeah, the Church of the Latter Day Geek. Yep. <laughs> yeah, which which still sort of still exists, doesn't it? It it's does. It's been a while since the last service. It has. We had one last year, and we had it down at the local Anglican church because my Anglican colleague was really into fantasy and sci-fi as well. The venerable Bill Beagley. Yes. Um, venerable because he was an Anglican priest, and they have exciting titles. <laughs> um, unlike 
us mere Uniting Church priests who are reverend and that's it. There's no more exciting titles for us. And he died very tragically and suddenly just after Christmas. So I have no idea what's going on with it now because... Yeah, that's With, just sad. I'd, I'd like to give him a shout out because he was at the one service that I yes. came along to and he was brilliant. Was he a Pratchett fan as well? Yeah, he was into pretty much everything. At the last service we took, he dressed up in full Highland um, kilt and dagger and everything and we decided he, had, he was Highlander. Um, (laughs) but basically he just wanted to wear his kilt yeah Um, well as long as long as all the you know the clergy present didn't sort of try to cut their heads off to to absorb their powers yeah there will be only one no (laughs) he he when i preached at his funeral i mentioned the fact that he was so proud he had smuggled a sword into the first church of latter-day geek service he'd attended and i had this no weapons rule at my church services and I didn't notice till afterwards that he had brought a sword in Uh, and he was very proud of himself. Is it like common to have to have a no weapons rule? At churches? Yeah. Um, It usually goes without saying, except in America where some churches Mm. have a bless your guns service. No. Yeah. Yeah. To that. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Let's not think about that. Some of my co-religious are really insane. Mm. 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 I'm going to put that away in a corner of my mind. Yeah, so. forget you heard that. Yeah. yeah. Mm. It's going to come out of my subconscious somewhere. <laughs> but. Well, before we get onto the book, there's a couple of things we should mention mm-hmm. at the top of this episode. This is episode 16 of Pratchat, so we've been going for a while now, but we've recently had quite a surge in listeners. So if this is one of your first episodes, welcome. Thank you. Um, it's lovely to have you. And we've also recently launched our subscription service, so you can support the podcast if you want to. We'll we'll say more about that at the end in our credits, but we just want to say a big thank you to everyone who's already come Mm. on board to support the the podcast. We we really want to get to the end of our journey and read and discuss every one of Pratchett's books with maybe a few bonus episodes here and there along the way. And knowing that you want that to happen as well and that you're willing to help has meant a lot to us. I'm not good at expressing emotions with words, so um, I've been nodding quite a lot while Ben said that. Um, <laughs> it's true. It's true. Yeah. I can vouch for that. Yeah. Mm. So thank you very much. But with that, it's probably time for us to discuss the book. Mm. So we'll begin as is traditional at Pratt Chat with a reading of the blurb. And I'm going to read a blurb from my copy, which is the first edition, second impression. Oh, it's um, super fancy, and we we're all yeah. ogling it. But it is also falling apart a little bit, um, as you might have seen on our <laughs> social media. So I'm good. Don't worry, I'm looking after it. I'm going to get the cover reattached. It's, it's otherwise in very good condition. It's hot in Australia, especially today, and that can melt some glue. Yeah, mm. I feel like it's it's had a rough time in in the Melbourne summer. <laughs> here we go with the blurb. Brother is the chosen one. His God has spoken to him, admittedly, while currently in the shape of a tortoise. Brother is a simple lad. He can't read, he can't write, he's pretty good at growing melons, and his wants are few. He wants to overthrow a huge and corrupt church. He wants to prevent a horrible holy war. He wants to stop the persecution of a philosopher who has dared to suggest that, contrary to the church's dogma, the Discworld really does go through space on the back of an enormous turtle. Which is true, but when has that ever mattered? He wants peace and justice and brotherly love. He wants the Inquisition to stop torturing him now, please. But most of all, what he really wants, more than anything else, is for his God to choose someone else. Now, I, li- I like this blurb, but <laughs> I've got to say, I don't know how much it really... Like, 
That is not brother at the start of the book. Okay, no. three things. That makes brother sound like he is trying to win a beauty pageant. <laughs> yes. Second yeah. thing, I know that it's correctly pronounced brother, but I've been in my head saying brother, mm-hmm. which I Me think too. is a kind of cake, yeah. actually. And the third thing is I resent him being called a simple lad because with a memory like his, like I was so jealous when yes. that came in. That's, that is not a simple, I know that's the whole thing, but how dare they say that it's simple? He is very exceptional. Well, I, he's exceptional, but remember, this is something ground we already covered in men at arms. Like simple does not mean stupid. Hmm. No, but as in like that's also not simple because it's complex. Yeah. Like it's a complex facet to his personality because like you, he wouldn't be the person he is if he didn't have that memory. That's how he's so good sure. at being devout other than his grandmother. Mm. So I just, I feel like I, I know what they're doing with it, but, but no. Okay. It's yeah. cause, um, there used to be this series of books called Teen Power Inc. by Emily Rodar. And there was a character in that who had a photographic memory. His name was Nick. And I was also very jealous of that. So I think, mm. yes, it would be very cool. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. Well, except that in brother's case, I mean, he really struggles with thinking things fast because he remembers absolutely everything. Yeah, um, that, they do make a point of saying that if his, his brain takes up so much power just remembering everything yeah. that there's no thinking room left. No. It's, He's using mm. up all his memory. I mean, which is not how brains actually work. Uh, it's probably worth mentioning that that idea that they like computers and have a finite amount of memory and you can only devote so much. To it, it's not really but What about the episode work. of Johnson and Friends where like they made an analogy with the bucket of marbles? Well, oh, no, but the lesson of that was that that's not a human brain. Even though Johnson is an elephant. Yeah. A toy elephant. Yeah. One of the things I like about Small Gods, and rereading it, I remembered, it it was my favourite for a long time. And rereading it, I'm like, I still do really love it. I've got an intuition it's not going to be my favourite by the time we get to the end of reading them all again. But I do still love it a lot. But one of the things I really like about it is it just really gets into things. Mm. Because one of the very first things that happened, uh, apart from, you know, the introduction um, and the little sort of interlude with the history monks, Mm. is... The key thing of the novel, which is Om approaching brother and talking to him. Mm. The blurb on the back of my copy stops with, he also wants the Inquisition to stop torturing him now, please. <laughs> um, which is a great ending. But your blurb ends with brother wants his God to choose someone else. Yeah. And that is brilliant because I'm pretty sure that is how every person who ever thinks God has called them some way, that's their first reaction. Yeah. Um, no, not me. Someone else. Go away. Yeah. Because that thing about the best leaders are the ones who don't covet power or leadership, so they're doing it for the right reasons. Mm. Was it, is that, does that gel with your experience? Yeah, absolutely. That's why I said I, was, I accidentally became a Uniting Church minister. Right. Um, I first felt a call to what might be ministry when I was 17, year 12, and for 10 years I ran as far in the opposite direction as I could, um, which included studying law of all utterly ridiculous things to do i'm um, so sorry i know i have a law degree it's completely useless i have no idea why i did that you realize this this trajectory means you're quite like a lot of stand-up comedians <laughs> yes. who study like law or accounting or science or yeah. something and then end up doing stand-up yeah well uh, apparently a lot of them end up as uniting church ministers as well because <laughs> uh, i've met quite a few um no my experience of pretty much every minister i know is that being called to ministry is something that happens when you've got other plans. Like <laughs> nobody would choose this. Yeah, okay. Um, yeah, so <laughs> I read this book and thought, oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, my God has never manifested God's self to me in the form of a tortoise, but apart from that, yeah, that's pretty much what it feels like. Yeah, yeah. okay. 
I re- I really enjoy the start as well because it it I mean it's not just that Om approaches him, but he has that like he deny he resists the call, you know, yep. to use the traditional phrasing. Um, but that's all dealt with very quickly, mm. <laughs> like the first twenty pages or something. Um, brothers like gone. Nope, it's not happening. Not happening. It's not happening. Oh, it is happening. Yeah. Uh, and then he just sort of has to put up with it. He goes to the head of the novices, who gaslights him a bit and sort of yeah. projects his own sort of. Oh, you're thinking about melons and demons. Um, and then wants to eat the turtle. And then, then after that, after they're making their escape, there's a there's a vorbous magnifying glass ants kind of scene. Mm. Yeah, brother Numrod. We should say his name because oh, I, yes. I I yes. knew it was a, a biblical allusion. Yep, uh, Nimrod. To Nimrod, but also I realise it's a rather coarse pun. It is, and there's a there's a nasty reference to pederasty. Yeah. In there that I just thought, oh, post royal commission, that's mm. not just not funny. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uncomfortable. Yeah. Is that now? What the, one of the things that when I was reading this is that it feels to me like omnianism is clearly not a lamp in a very particular religion. It seems to really sort of amalgamate a bunch of stuff from all of your Abrahamic sort of monotheism kind of things. Oh, I reading it as a Christian for me it was clearly Christianity. Okay. So it would be interesting to have people of other faiths say, "Do you recognise your own faith in this?" Yeah. Because there were bits where I went, "Oh, that's the Catholic Church. Oh, that's the Evangelicals. Oh, that's my church." It does feel like there's at least bits of Islam in there as well. Like they they talk yeah. about having regular prayer. I mean, they're sort of more trappings yeah. rather than anything deep i guess yes and they i mean they have a series of prophets but that's also judaism Mm. and there's this really lovely bit where they describe the number of uh, commandments they have which is 512 Mm. although when the next prophet comes there'll be a bit more and if you know that there's (laughs) there's 613 commandments in the jewish torah then you know there are 101 commandments less than that and it's like oh when the next prophet comes they'll be up to that as you said that it just (laughs) occurred to me that's also a computing joke because 512 is one of these sort of standard levels of how much memory you can have uh because it's all in powers of two and um and then when the next prophet comes they'll have a bit more (laughs) yeah i'm gonna giggle about that later i did not i did not pick that up when reading it that's fantastic yeah no i I was reading then going oh oh is that funny for people who don't know there's 613 commandments? It's just bite-sized jokes. Yeah. <laughs> yes. I don't know. What, what is the hi- well, what do you feel like the hierarchy most resembles? Because you've got these, these novices mm-hmm. uh, and then you've got, you know, the master of novices and then you've got like these 50 million levels of different yep. sort of ranks of priests, which does feel like the Catholic Church. I yeah. Guess. Yeah. And the, the great thing that Vorbis is only a deacon because mm. the head of the Quisition has to be kept humble by being a deacon, which is the lower of if you're in a church that has deacon, priest, bishop, it's at the bottom, but so obviously is in charge of everything. Yeah. And that just feels to me like pretty much every church I've ever had anything to do with. Or did every bureaucracy. Yeah. You know? yeah. It's never the chancellor of the university who gets anything done, you know. It's the vice chancellor who does all the work. Everyone's or, doing the committees yeah. and then the actual meetings are happening. Yep. And as Pratchett says in this book, or it's the person in charge of the minutes. It's the mm. minute secretary. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. They who control the information control the world. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. So I was reading this and, I mean, it is a kind of, you know, twisted medieval Europe and it is definitely um, the Catholic Church with beginnings of Reformation challenges in there 
like just throwing mm. in reference to things like predestination and indulgences and it's like, yeah. Yeah. But then again, it's geography and kind of uh, otherwise culture is clearly meant to be Middle Eastern mm. in, a va- in, in that kind of vague way. Yeah. Mm. Well, um, very close with to the, the desert. Yeah. Mm. And with the Dibbler analogue character as well. Yeah. And they're close to Jelly Belly, which is pyramids. So. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. yeah. It's a mashup, but it's interesting to me that you most clearly identify it as being very Christian um, in its construction. Well, the thing that it reminded me of were was old Doctor Who, mm. where um, take a drink, listeners. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> do they take a drink? Because you didn't do it. Oh, no, I'll join in though. Okay, yeah. Where um, when we were talking about religion in Doctor Who, one of the things that someone said was the most establishment thing you could do is make fun of the Church of England. Mm. And that's what old Doctor Who was. It was really British middle class, let's make fun of the Church of England. And I was reading this going, ah, yeah, that's somebody coming out of a Church of England background. Yep, that's what they're making fun of. Yeah. It does go a lot deeper than that, though, which is which is yes. good. I can imagine that gets pretty tiresome if that's all you're doing after a while. Well, if you do it really well, I mean, <laughs> it, it is Fair. healthy to be able to laugh at oneself. Yeah. Yeah. But no, this... This book, I had forgotten how much I loved it, but there's um, a couple of things in it that I have remembered in the 20 years since I last read it that have really shaped my understanding of my ministry and my faith. And I don't know whether Pratchett would be pleased by that or not, but... Yeah, I, I would hope so. I mean, I it's if you look up interviews with him, I think it's fairly clear that he himself was at least agnostic, if not atheist. And I, I'm, I haven't gone and looked this up, so hmm. you know, I, I can't remember which one he most strongly identified with. I think that's kind of good, not knowing reading this book as well, <laughs> because it's yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. I think I think he was anti the things he's anti in this book. Hmm. I don't think he was anti religion altogether, and it's something that's e- it's easy to to sort of think that if someone just describes to you the plot of the book or what tells you what it's about as a soundbite, much the same way that people complained about, say, Life of Brian for the same mm. reasons. But when you watch it, it's not about that. It's about it's very much like this is. It's, it is. it's about blind following of something without really understanding it and not for any deeply held belief. But we've already met our main sort of protagonists or characters. We've met Brother. We've met mm-hmm. Om, yep. uh, the great god Om, currently <laughs> in the shape of a tortoise, which I – Rather enjoyed. He just had a quite a literal fall from from power, like because oh, he dropped by an yes. eagle onto a manure heap. Ah, but the eagle was trying to drop him on something hard. So mm. divine providence at work. So like, yes. So should he be worshiping a different small god to like bring them into? But they had the whole thing of like gods have no one to pray to. Yeah. But why can't they pray to each other? I think because, their belief doesn't count. Yeah, uh, but if they prayed to each other, their belief would make the other god bigger, and obviously they're scared of uh, having to take over. Yeah, it's like it's like going. Oh no, we don't need to go to the petrol station. I'll just fill your car up out of my car. You know, it doesn't oh, work. There's a finite way. amount of space. Like, a, well, I can't, think can't they all just get along? And it's more that we need to get together. it from somewhere else. It's yeah. like what's the what's the biblical phrase? Um, uh, was it paying? Oh, robbing Peter to pay Paul. Yeah, it's not like, biblical. No, not biblical. No, really. Oh, there you go. I always thought it was. Like it references the Bible, surely, but it's not. Yes, in, it yeah. references St. Peter and St. Paul. Right. Um, okay. but, yeah. <laughs> Obviously, but sorry. nobody stole from one to pay the other. Um, I would need to look up where that comes from. I mean, mm. it's probably something it's around David church building. Yeah. yeah, we'll ask him on we'll, Twitter. We'll tweet him. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, 
But look, yeah, so we, and we've met Vorbus, um, who we've mentioned as head of the Quisition. Mm. Now, they, they keep talking about the Quisition and that yep. there are Inquisitors is... and Exquisitors. And I kept, I had a memory that there was an explicit joke about that somewhere, but I didn't see one. It was just sort mm. of all implied, which I really liked, actually. Mm. I was like, I don't need that explained to me. I get it. That's cool. Because the Inquisitors are just the guys who show up to work cheerily, stamp in, do their torture, go back out, have dinner with their family. It's just an honest day's work. Which is, I mean, that is a great is quote. really soon in the beginning and it's one of the most terrifying things. And it all meant this, that there are hardly any excesses of the most crazed psychopaths that cannot easily be duplicated by a normal, kindly family man who just comes into work every day and has a job to do. Because it's so true, so terrifying. It is. I, yeah. I wrote Nazis in the margin. <laughs> yeah. Like, oh, yeah. And not just that. I mean, like, you know, we we have that in Australia. We do. Right now, we have people working on refugee policy. And and things yep. become yeah. normal so quickly yeah. that you just stop seeing it as an issue. And it's yeah. terrifying. And it's, and it's easy to look at that at the far end of the extreme fascism and, and the stuff that happens in this book with people torturing people. But, mm. it, you know, it doesn't have to go that far. One of the things that stops us from questioning our own behavior uh, and realizing the things we do that are harmful is when we have that idea in our head that, oh, I'm not like that, or I'm mm. not, I could never be one of those people. Yep. And that is one of the ideas that stops you from that self-examination. Um, and I know I've had, you know, I've had that about things in my own life. Uh, and, you know, this is the extreme version of that. Yeah. Avenue Q has that great song, Everyone's a Little, a little bit, bit Racist. racist. <laughs> yeah. And, like, it's all satire and stuff, but that's just, it's so true yep. because we – compare ourselves to others we're like oh well i'm better than that group yeah which Mm. stops self-interrogation which i think is harmful to overall growth it's why we now talk about or or things like white privilege are talked about it's not about you as an individual and what you do it's there's this entire social structure from which you're benefiting Mm. so consider that yeah 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 um, but uh, look, these these two people come together, Vorbis and Brother, because Vorbis discovers or hears stories of Brother's incredible memory mm-hmm. uh, and has him sent for. And being sent for by <laughs> the Quisition is not something anybody wishes. Uh, but he goes there, he's asked to sort of remember the things that he saw in the antechamber where he was waiting and he remembers them in excruciating detail. And they play the tray game that you play at birthday parties and I love that. Like, did you ever play mm. that? Yeah. Kim's no. game. Yeah, so they bring out a tray of stuff mm. um, and there's like usually 12 things on it. They show it to you for like 30 seconds. They yep. cover it or take it away and then you have to write down all the things you remember from the tray and it's very rare to get like even half. Mm. So I love that they work that in to like the this scary committee meeting test yep. yeah oh wow see i've I never i'd never heard of that so that, that ah. when's your birthday totally we're gonna play <laughs> no, it's, not, it's not far away it's were about two episodes time no That's, no i was not yeah i did it as a i was in a youth group for a while though oh. so i i feel like they should have don't you worry your time will come hmm. but they didn't it's all right yeah. we just we just sang covers of Beatles songs it was good <laughs> um but okay yeah wow but it's, it's i love that how far it goes down the detail route where he doesn't just remember all the things that were on it, but he like remembers how many coins there were and they ask him what kind of coins they mm. were. And he doesn't know what all of them are, um, but he knows more of them than they think he should. Mm. And I, I think it also serves a really interesting purpose in really showing us how oppressive this regime is because, you know, they question, or oh, how do you know what this coin is from mm. outside? And he's like, oh, I might have seen one when I was a kid. You know, sometimes people pay for things when they're pilgrims or whatever. And he has to have an excuse or a reason to mm. know that to yep. let himself off the hook. 
I was surprised though, because they go from this interaction to him being invited to go to a Phoeb with them. And brother immediately sort of goes, Oh, Vorbis, he's my friend. He's a good guy. Like he's sort of, and I, th- and I mm. like, he changes his mind later, but like, mm. I was surprised because that didn't seem like the natural progression. I, I don't think it was, he's my friend. It was, he is a person of authority in the church. And therefore, because I believe absolutely everything the church has ever told me, I believe that he must be a good guy. So it's yeah. blind faith yeah. coming through. And it's also like, it's quite, I had to remind myself towards the end of the book that at the start of the book, brother's perfectly okay. Like he's never questioned that all the torture and the horrible things that they do. Like he, he talks about how, you know, they have the, the massive metal bull where they burn things and, and Om's like, well, like, and he's like, clearly insinuated that Om thinks it's people in there and it's not people in there it's like books but still they burn they do burn people it's just somewhere else and he's on board with that like he's not on board with, with that yeah sorry <laughs> uh, but he's not uh, actively participating in it i think if they'd asked him to he would have done it at that stage yeah. though wouldn't he have questioned have, it for yeah. sure yeah and he has to squash himself from saying the the rote lines when they get onto the boat later because yep. he's starting to think but he still has the urge to yeah because regret- brother actually argues back to Om when Om saying torturing people wasn't actually what Om was on about and brother says but it doesn't matter what happens to us in this life is not really real you know there may be a little pain but that doesn't matter not if it ensures less time in the hells after death I mean he has completely drunk the Kool-Aid yeah on on this yeah it's true Mm. um the other thing that we should mention is established quite early uh is the fact that there's this heresy going around in mm. Omnia um, about the turtle. And I, 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 don't, look, I have always loved this so much that, you know, in no other world would there be the equivalent of Galileo's heliocentric model yep. being heresy. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it's about a turtle and a flat world. Yeah. yeah. Well, Whereas, all the water would drop off the bottom if it was a sphere. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> well, this is, I love that the, the Omnians believe this or they've, you know, they've concocted this story. Who knows where it's come from? Because it clearly hasn't come from Om. Hmm. And he, and also, you know, it's it's like, why? <laughs> why do you believe this? Because it's, they never quite explain what the point of that is. Well, there is um, no point. It's round. Hmm. <laughs> it could also be uh, kind of the disc version of, of geocentrism, where the idea is, that, well, if you're on a flat disc, but you're just on the back of a turtle swimming through space, well, obviously, you're not in the middle of anything. You're just passing through. Yeah. But if we believe we're on a perfect sphere with a sun that orbits us, well, we could be the middle of everything. I mean, you never really find that out. It's not really that important to the story, but it was it was interesting to me, like, where does that come from? Uh, but I would like to quickly just talk about how I really enjoyed the references to the prophets throughout because there's that back and forth between brother and Om about, oh, well, you said this to this mm-hmm. guy, and Om's like, oh, is that the one with the bad teeth or is that the tall one? Because they're clearly just guys throughout yeah. history who've been like brother, who've just heard his call been true believers and there's been good ones and bad ones who've clearly twisted hearing the word to their own advantage by mm-hmm. coming up with their own sort of codes to live by in particular ossery i thought was quite a interesting one yeah ossery was i mean in in some ways he's moses because apparently om did speak to him out of something burning Mm. Yeah, but in oh, terms a of a fire or something, yeah. yeah. But in terms of the vibe of his things that he wrote down, they seemed like the most mean spirited out of all of them, perhaps. 
might be a little reflection of that view of the Old Testament God as being very much more about wrath and punishment. That's normally people who are just being nasty about the Jewish roots of Christianity when actually, you know, pretty much all of Jesus' good ideas the Jews already had. Hmm. Yeah, Jesus just came back to say, hey, listen, (laughs) do you remember this stuff? Like, it was good. Yeah, you know that stuff about loving one another? Really, really mean it. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, don't forget that stuff. No, you know, the thing the prophets have been saying all the way through, yeah. I like when he was like, why would I have giant slabs already carved? Like, where would I have have gotten those from? (laughs) And it's funny because he's a tortoise and he wouldn't have been at the time, but like... You're sort of picturing a tortoise sort of scrabbling away at some <laughs> some rocks that are going, oh, rub against yep. it, write yeah. these down. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but look, you know, once Orbis has sort of figured out Brother's talent, yeah, he recruits him for this trip. And it's interesting that, you know, that trust that we were just talking about goes both ways because mm. not only does Brother decide that Vorbis is his friend, but Vorbis decides that Brother is completely trustworthy. Because he's, he's loyal. Sort of, and, he, and he kind of, I mean, he, you know, he, He's he's not wrong. Like no. brother clearly really believes in everything and, and is simple in that he doesn't have that sort of broader context or um, imagination to think outside that box. Um, but also we know that one of the people who was supposed to be going along to this um, mission to Ephib, um to to complain to them about the fact that they supposedly killed Stoned one of their and, yeah. missionaries um, mm-hmm. is one of the members of the turtle conspiracy and is found out by Vorbis uh, at the last sort of minute, just as he's getting drunk and is thinking, I should just kill him, mm. yeah. which a lot of people think in this book. Again and again, people think the solution is to kill Vorbis and various people say, maybe that's not a great idea, mostly brother actually. And then the solution at the end seems mm. to be to kill Vorbis, but you've got to do it the right way at the right time for the purposes of the narrative. Yes, but also, I mean, the way Vorbis is killed, it's it's not actually any of the characters. Yeah. I mean, it's not but, any of the human characters. Yeah, yeah. He is smote by God, really. Yeah, and yeah. that's really important because way near the end there's a discussion about whether or not, among a couple of the turtle followers, whether they should save Brother or not. And Urn, who is an Ephebian, is saying we must save Brother and uh, Simony, Simony, who is um, one of the heretics, is saying, well, what's the point? I mean, we'll just end up getting killed ourselves. And he wants him to be a martyr to the cause in a yeah. way as well. So. Oh, yes. Yeah. And Ern is horrified that uh, Simony can't see that, you know, the point is when someone innocent is being tortured, you'd try your best to save them. Because there's too many people who have got an agenda beyond let's look out for each other yeah. in this book. Yeah. So. Which is, I guess, part of the whole commentary. Yes, there's there's a bit at the end that I think is is the uh, the heart, the core, the centre of this book. But it is that idea about um, looking after each other. Yeah, Vorbis is someone I really would like to just look in the eye, though, because he they just des- they describe the aura around him so much, and I just want to see it. As in, like, I, I want to see it from a safe distance. Yes, <laughs> um, maybe through like some a one way mirror. There's that, like when he's turned Om on his back when he's a, mm. a tortoise and he mm. sort of looks into his eyes, like it's not about belief. He just would watch someone die because he's curious to see what would happen, even if that someone is a god and he was aware of it. Like that's just yeah, so interesting. I've got to say, by the way, that and I'm sure this has got to be deliberate, but that scene always reminds me of Blade Runner because that's one of the questions on the Voigtkampf test that you ask to someone ah. to find out if they're a replicant is there's a tortoise on its back. It's going to die. You're not helping it. Why aren't you helping it? I'm paraphrasing, but 
that's one of the questions they ask to you and you have to answer it. And your answer is one of the things they judge to decide if you're a human or a a robot. Well, they've got a really good paragraph in here about how it's one of the most pathetic things you can see, like Mm. watching them trying to waggle their their legs and lever out their things. And levering is is another big theme of the book. There's a lot of levers. As are nostrils, they come up more than is normal. You know, I think I guess it's because, like, from a tourist point of view, because they they mentioned him looking up and he sees the wrong side of nostrils, and there's another bit about nostrils like a hundred pages later, and I'm just mm. like, that's not a theme. That's just a. I guess he was thinking about nostrils. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Nostrils not being intelligent design. That's what he was saying. That if you thought about it a bit longer, if it was just one intelligent yes. creator, then the nostrils are actually very intelligent. I just <laughs> they're well designed. So you know, I get confused because even though I've done shows about evolution and I have read up on creationism, I still sometimes get confused as to which arguments are for or against <laughs> it because, quite frankly, they don't have a consistent position on why it works. But anyway. Um, nostrils are smart. It's the immune system's reaction to a virus and the way it affects nostrils that's not smart. The hair stops things from getting in. Mm-hmm. Having two of them means you have a backup. It's the sinuses that are a problem and it's the fact that the walls get swollen in an immune response that causes them to get blocked. So, yeah, and and also the mucus is helpful because it cleans it out. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, Yeah. this is nostril talk with Pratt Chat. (laughs) Amazing. Um, this actually, you know, this is. I think someone asked us this question, and I about just nostrils. Realized, uh, no, it was about about oh. the most pathetic things because a tortoise on its back is like the second or third most mm. pathetic thing that could possibly exist. And we'll come back to that at the end. I think it's the ninth. It's the fourth when a tortoise is aware that mm. it's that like yeah, perhaps, that, yeah that bumps it up if the tortoise knows what's mm. happening to it. Yeah. So after all these things have come together, they head off to a Phoebe on a boat, mm-hmm. and this oh this. Now, I don't know about you, but I, I already was like, Vorbis is awful. Although you don't see him do anything particularly awful and, until this boat trip. Oh. I mean, he, he does tip over Om, but then when he finds out that the sailors have, you know, sailor superstitions yep. and he makes them kill and eat a porpoise, I'm like, this is not okay. And the sailors are like, we're all going to die. Mm-hmm. And they're correct. Yeah, they yes. are. Yes. Yeah. But, they- but not because of the eating of the porpoise. Well, it kind is of, it not? Yeah, because I thought like that brought about the storm and that's why Om had to make a deal with the, with the Queen of the Sea. sea. Yeah, because like, oh. that's kind of their bargain. Because I, yeah. I love sailor superstitions. I mm. love them so much. I hate them because one of them is uh, women on board are bad luck. Mm. Oh, look, I don't, I don't think you should follow them, uh, <laughs> but I, I find them fascinating. And I, and I can sort of see, I mean, this is a, a body of superstition that builds up around a profession that when you think about it, when people were going out, on the sea in tall ships, like it was like going into space. Mm. Like you didn't know how to swim and it didn't matter if you did because you had nowhere to swim to. If if you fell off that ship or if the ship got caught on fire or sprung a leak and you couldn't fix it, you were all dead. It was extremely dangerous. And so you have all these superstitions to help you feel safe, whether or not they really have anything to do with anything that helps you. And yeah, you know, obviously some of them, uh, just reinforcing prejudices or... Yeah. Or... I, I live in a suburb with three yacht clubs, hmm. one of which apparently is the working class yacht club. Hmm. Um, I didn't know you could have such a thing. So I am against superstition that says I cannot go out on boats. I'm fa- yeah, look, I would that would be the first one I would turf. Hmm. Um, but I'm I'm pretty okay with the superstitions of not killing albatrosses or porpoises. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. 
And uh, it's not really a superstition, but a practical thing um, is bringing a cat on board because they actually help to keep the ship's hygiene good. Mm. Keep it good. Um, <laughs> they do. They do the good to the hygiene um, because they eat the mouses and the rats. Anyway. There's a whole book about it. It's called Seafurers, but um, yeah. yeah. Wait, what? Seafurers? Yeah, because it's all about cats that have oh. travelled around the world on ships. That's so yes. Um, so Trim yes. has circumnavigated Flinders. Australia, but James Cook never did. Mm. Yeah. So where is the statue to Trim? Actually, I think he has one. So Om has made this deal with the sea, mm. sea goddess um, to save Brother because, great big enormous plot point, Brother is the only person who actually believes in mm. Om. Yeah. Um, and then in the storm, the sailors decide, well, Brother is the one they're going to toss overboard. Brother is Jonah, but rather than taking lots to find out who the sea god is angry at they just pick the nearest person yeah, yeah. they pick yeah. the guy who's not their friend because he's the new yeah. guy yeah well he's a member of the church but he's not a member of the crew but he's like the least important one mm. yeah i think it, although i don't know that they go through their reasoning as as logically as that <laughs> but on a subconscious level it's like oh we can emotionally deal with losing this one yeah yeah i, I think in the book it, i think what they say is you know you're the nearest person yeah, sorry about this, but yep. uh, it's you we're, or the rest of the ship. Yep, we're going to uh, toss you over the side. But then, yeah, Om makes his little deal. Cause he's just like, I've, I'm a god. I've, I've got, you've only got one believer. So that, that's one's enough. Yep. I've got rights. And I kind of like that there's this sort of uh, agreement between gods that, you know, they'll, they can do this sort of thing, which is in sharp contrast to the way that gods behave in many of the other books. <laughs> <laughs> Um, yes. Where they're playing their ineffable games, which which are always basically Dungeons and Dragons. Um, but they've got their pirate. It's like the pirate laws. Like, oh well, we all won't get along, but we've got a code. Yes. Oh, yeah, that's a good way to put it. Mm. But like also, that. I mean, this book is about brother learning how to be, you know, um, a a proper person. It's also about Om learning how to be a proper god mm. and indeed a proper person. Mm. Yes, because he's never been a person before. And so at the end, when the other gods are basically seeing life as a game, Om is the one who says, no, don't just kill people randomly. He's had this very humbling experience and spent all this time as a tortoise understanding that, hey, you know what, life actually is pretty rough. It's not just you just do your thing and then you die. It's an interesting comment on empathy because it suggests that you can't really have proper empathy without experiencing it yourself to a degree. Well, well, I think it's for just gods, I forgot. Think. Yeah. yeah, that gods yeah. can't because they just don't have. And I, you know, I, when I was reading that part of the book, I thought that's a really interesting allusion to Jesus. Yep, that's mm. the whole point of Jesus. That's mm. the incarnation. Yeah, right. Christian God is not really represented as not being able to empathize with humans. He does this to show that he does that he can. Yeah, everything um, humans experience, God has experienced. Yeah, yeah. I sometimes hear people talk about that. Surely it doesn't matter. Like. Jesus died, but then he just comes back to life three days later anyway. And <laughs> like, like a Marvel he, movie. Like, yeah, but like he was crucified. Like it yeah. was awful. Like he actually did die. And, and it all, takes a long time if you're crucified. Or and can. a couple of the Gospels, what he cries out on the cross is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Yeah. So God has experienced the absence of God. That's so, Yeah, mm, that's yeah. intense. I think a lot of people who make those sort of shallow criticisms are not giving even just the story of it, whether you choose to believe that it's true yeah. or not. Whether it's to, an allegory or history. Like yeah, but you, yeah. You need to, you've need you got to look for the the nuance of it and the deepness and what it really means. I think you've got to take it. At, you can't just take it at 
what you think it means. You've got to think about it a bit more. That was not very um, nuanced no, <laughs> sentence, but, but I think you know what I mean. But as at story level, I mean, what people like me are always pointing out is some of the stories that are most popular and are felt most deeply are basically analogies of that. So, mm. you know, the whole Harry Potter thing yeah. is straight out, dying to save others. Um, Aslan. Yep. So many Doctor Who analogies. Oh, yeah. Yep. So this is where I'd like to talk about Whistle Down the Wind, a rather obscure Andrew Lloyd Webber musical that okay. <laughs> I think he had licensed to put out because he'd had such success. So from what, because I saw it live for some reason mm. as a child, I and mean, it was good, it has good music, but from what I can remember, it's set in an American town, children are raised very religious and they're told that Christ will rise again one day and they go down to the train tracks and there's an injured man who never says that he is Christ returned, but because they've been told this message, they believe that it's him. Mm-hmm. And as far as I know, it's left ambiguous as to whether or not he is. But all the adults in the town treat him as what Enid Blyton would call a dirty old tramp yep. because he's sort of homeless and they don't know who he is. So the children are very much like, oh, this is Christ come again. Let's mm-hmm. help him. And all the adults are like, no, 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 that's that's a bad man to avoid him so yep. i think and there's a sort of showdown and there's also a song by boy's own but um <laughs> but yeah um i i find myself thinking about that a lot during this mm. one as well because there's the true believers like there's the the purity of of brothers belief and then there's all the people who are supposed to be high, high up in the church who are doing everything they can to not believe in god coming again there's a bit where the the faith that most omnians have is described um, Om, when he's realising that he's only got one true believer brother and he thinks it can't just be him who believes in me, really in me, not in a pair of golden horns, not in a great big building, not in the dread of hot iron and knives, not in paying your temple dues because everyone else does, just in the fact that the great God Om really exists. And I read that bit and that's the bit that has stayed with me in the 20 years, the the temptation to stop believing in God and start believing in the church. Mm. That's the bit that that I've kept hold of as don't do that. But also rereading it now, I was looking at it and going, oh, my goodness, that's such a Church of England idea. Um, oh, that's a bit mean of me from being outside to say that. But, you know, the idea that if you have an established church, which is just part of the scenery and you just go along because everyone else does and, you know, it's, it's a nice faith but you don't really believe in it. Mm. Yeah. Mm. And one of the great things about Australia is we're an a-religious country in a lot of ways. We don't have an established religion and I am appalled when anyone talks about Australia as a Christian country, Mm. firstly because it rejects anyone who's not Christian, but secondly because it's really bad for Christians if they become part of the power Mm. because Mm. then you start worshipping that rather than than Jesus. Yeah, you start to assume that you know, your your beliefs are right. You don't have to question them anymore because it's part of the country, it's part of the institution and I think, you know, when you see the way that some Christians behave and talk in America, for example, mm. and not just there, obviously, but that's the example that we see most, that seems to be where that's coming from. And they believe things like, oh, well, you know, if you've got lots of money, then God has blessed you. Or if, you know, some of them seem to go so far as to think of 
the office of president as like the divine right of kings yes. because yep. you can't get to be president of America unless God has blessed you. And you're like, that's not how it works. And no. Great passage in here about how like that sort of privilege is viewed as like, oh, and like it, it comes up throughout. Like mm. if you are punished, it's because you will sin or you have sins. Yep. Like it's, it's already preordained. If you have money or have power, it's because you deserve it. Mm-hmm. So. Mm. Yeah, that's prosperity theology. It is an incredibly widely held heresy, the idea that um, God has blessed the rich. We should say it's broader than that as well in the book too because the way Vorbis talks about suspicion Mm. of the quisition is also like, well, we wouldn't be suspicious of you if, you know, you hadn't done anything because, you know, Om wouldn't give us this incorrect thought yes that (laughs) you're like "Mm, what that is never a chain of thought that has any logic attached to it because it's like well if you believe that how can you believe that the person doing the wrong thing is doing it for anything except reasons that om has chosen it's like the flaw and minority report oh okay i can see you want to talk about this (laughs) no but like it's just like they have you know how in minority report the philip k dick novella that is now a tom cruise movie that gets the novella wrong but that's okay because it's good in its own right um it's about how there's a precog department where they have three mm-hmm. psychics who can see into the future and they'll see murders before they happen. And I'm going by the movie here more than the book because the book's got more nuance. So, um, yeah. they, they can see when murders are going to happen. They spit out the name of the murder and they go arrest them before they can do the crime. And that sounds great, but it doesn't take into consideration other things like they might not do it. And they also, the minority report, from what I can remember, and this could be a little bit wrong, is if two of the three say it, they still go arrest the person. Yeah, but they don't look at the vision that the third, the third one had. So, like, it, it's flawed because it's circular viewing as though everything is fixed mm. when it's not. Mm. And that's kind of how they have this attitude. Like, uh, And the grandmother in this story, which I still haven't been able to decide if she's a villain or a hero mm. or what, because she, cause he'll say that he, she, she'll beat him in the morning because he's definitely going to sin that day. And they say that she would have been a like, – they make that line that – if she had been born a man, she would have been the prophet. But also it sounds like she might have been Vorbis. Yeah, she could have been in the Quisition for sure. So, I, I don't think she's either – I don't think she's villain or not villain. I think she's just a really accurate description of women that I have met. Does all the church flowers <laughs> and like it's just like yes, stays there and asks all the questions. If she had been a man, Omnianism would have found its eighth prophet rather earlier than expected. As it was, she organised the temple cleaning, statue polishing and stoning of uh, suspected adulteresses, rotors with a terrible efficiency. That's a really interesting passage because I I read that and I was like, okay, cool, I've got a grasp of who she is. But then later on they mentioned that she beat him. And like, I I can see how she has a blind faith and it's implied she has a memory as well. Mm -hmm. But maybe her and brother are the same and the difference is that Om came to brother and opened his mind. But I also don't know that had Om been taken out of the picture and brother had gone to Ephib and met the philosophers anyway, would it have followed the same trajectory? I think the difference is that he's male in a male-dominated religion. I have met her and the problem that those women have is they have a call to ministry in a religion or a church that doesn't allow women to be ordained and there's still just the last remnants of them in my church people women who were growing up at a time when ministry was for the very very few exceptional women and they're so frustrated Mm -hmm. and I think that's I 
Yeah, she's not a villain. I recognise her as the intensely frustrated, deeply religious woman who could do the job as well as any priest she's come across and doesn't have that opportunity. Yeah. And so Mm. because she doesn't have a flock, she's extra hard on the one person she does have. Yep. There's a great deal of frustration. Yeah. I've got to say that having people like that in your congregation is terrifying Mm. and deeply frustrating, but they're not villains. They're just, you know, suffering from religions that don't recognise that you know, human beings come in a variety and all, all of whom have different gifts. Things mm. come in different shapes. They do. As tortoises. And tortoises, yeah. Yes. Yeah. And gods, apparently. Can I just make a point? Like his his shell is cracked, right? A little bit. Yeah, so like every every what sort shift? of ten pages I'd get into the and the, he'd talk and I'd be like, his shell's cracked. Isn't that really bad for him? Get out the cell. He's all clear. Fix it. Oh. Fix, do something, knit <laughs> I, him a little sweater. Just just uh, don't let the rain into his little tortoise body. It would be bad news. Um, I do just want to say on the subject of, of Brother's grandmother, though, that the description of her is not a million miles away from the description of um, Mrs. Cake and the mm. way that she sort of takes over various religious organisations. Mm. But they're portrayed as very different. Like she's sort of got this, she does have that ruthless efficiency, but she never is awful to anyone. It's a different take on a similar idea. But, I, yeah, I really like where you sort of mm. took that. And being awful is like the norm in the Citadel? Because like, mm. like around them ter- people are being tortured all the time. That's mm. normal. So I suspect yeah. it would be hard to not absorb some of that. But he didn't grow up in the Citadel. Like he grew up outside from mm. like because he, he seems to have grown up in like a little town mm. that's part of Omnia and then gone to the Citadel. To but the Inquisitors would come to your town yeah. and mm. that would be like a normal thing wouldn't it there's a terrifying description of an image and it says you know you could tell that um it was about religion because people were killing each other it's and you know it's not murder if you do it for god Mm. and it's like well if that's your underlying belief system then yeah everyone's going to be a little bit screwed up yeah yeah Yeah. and sadly we've seen throughout history that yeah that's true yeah people some people do believe that yeah it's not good No. no um but look, we, we need to get to a Phoebe because some really important stuff in the plot happens there. Uh, just does the philosophers and he just changes his mind and it just sets the book off in a whole different direction. It's a this library. Is get... oh, yeah. A For a while. The world. And we have been to a Phoebe before in, in uh, yeah. Pyramids when we were we you know, travelled there from Jelly Baby. I've met Zeno before. We have. We, we touched on this a little bit in the episode about Pyramids, but that's what makes people wonder when Pyramids is set and also when this book is set because brother lives for like a hundred years at the end of the book spoiler alert and they renew the church you mm. know it has a big change uh and that is the version of the church that we know from the more recent watch novels when you have constable Washpot or um mm. constable um uh, what is it uh, approach the infidel with explanatory pamphlets or <laughs> whatever like they're omnians but they're from the more reformed gentler Kind persuasive kind of omnianism, mm. yes. uh, so that which puts this book like the first, the first part of it like a century in the past of the Discworld, mm. but then Zeno's in it, and so is Ibid, and so then but then also Pyramids is all about time being completely screwed up. So it it, it could be any time you decide, listener, how you want it to work, and that is correct for you. <laughs> and we've got Lucy, the 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 time guy, yeah, wandering in and out there. of yeah, this. So the like history it's just, monk, yeah. yeah, yeah. Also, I mean, philosophers would obviously live a very long time because mm. they have a nice sedentary profession. That's true. Yeah, like yeah. prophets, and, and Didactylos seems pretty old. Mm. 
Yeah. Yes. Um, but yeah, we meet. Um, well, first of all, uh, the Omnians are escorted into the palace, of which is, Phoebe. and they walk through a very civilized town when they're expecting a lot of like brutality and just the propaganda machines gotten to them. Yeah, you know, mm-hmm. it's like it's like fascism one hundred and one. Tell your population that everyone else is awful. Yeah, make them believe that they're the best and give them spurious reasons to believe why they're better than everyone else. Mm. Um, like it's something that's exploited in certain kinds of congregation where, you know, the message to the people in the room is you are better than everyone else. You know, and I'm talking about this kind of religions where they're like, well, you know, only this many people will ever go to heaven and we are those chosen people. Yep. That is not a healthy way to think about yourself, that you are better than everybody else. Mm. Everybody else throughout history got it wrong until our tiny little congregation. Mm-hmm. If you just told it often enough, you don't have to have a reason. You know, if you, if the reason is God thinks you're special, hmm. if you want to believe that enough, you won't question it because, like, you don't question because we've got of... the gourd. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. So I don't know, but it's uh, there's that about omnianism as well. And so when they come to a Phoebe, and then all barbarians like killing each other and you know stoning each other in the street. Um, I mean, they do get drunk and have a fight in a pub. <laughs> Yes. Philosophers in the pub being drunk. Wonderful description of pub fights where, Mm. you know, two guys being held back by their friends, and the last thing you want is your friends to actually let go of you because Mm. then you might have to fight. Oh, that was so good. Yeah. Yeah. He does write a good pub brawl. Oh, yep. yep. Um, But I mean, we're getting a bit ahead of ourselves. Also, we've got to mention the labyrinth uh, that they have to get into the palace. There's a labyrinth that only six people know the way through, and each of them don't know all the way through. They only know one-sixth of the way through, so you have to be shown and then you ring a little bell and you wait at a little safe zone and then the next person. And it's not just a labyrinth that you can get lost in. It's got traps in it. I mean, yep. it's this is Dungeons & Dragons all over. If only someone had a really good memory in mm. this book. Mm. Mm. Now mm. we know why Vorbis has brought brother. I, I, I'd forgotten that and I was like, this is cool. Yep. This is so cool. And when they're leading him through, he's like, I don't know why they've bothered with all this secrecy. Yeah. Like I could just walk out of here at any time. Which he does, yeah, that, yeah. that evening. Yes. Yeah. Uh, and the, just sort of the way that the version of Greek democracy <laughs> that is presented here is so great. They call him the tyrant and yep. largely drawn from real Greek and even a little bit of Roman history. Which gives it the best footnote in the book. Um, when they're talking about Greek democracy and the Ephebians believe that every man should have the vote. And then the footnote is, provided he wasn't poor, foreign, nor disqualified by reason of being mad, frivolous, or a woman. Yeah. This is like a, a point that he likes to make. Like, I feel like I've read this in a different book. I can't remember which it, one. It can never yeah. be made often yeah, enough. It's a great point. <laughs> like, yeah. Every yes. book should have it. Well, it yeah. contrasts with the patrician who believed in one man, one vote, but he was the man and he had the vote. <laughs> yeah. uh, as long as it's that patrician, I'm happy for him to, to do that. Yeah. Because he seems to be in it for the right reasons. I know, but as you discussed, you know, mm. what's the succession plan? Mm. Yeah. I had not pondered that till I listened to that episode of the podcast. Yeah, I just hope he lives forever. In our minds, he will. Veterinary, yeah. Yeah. He has to. But, they, I mean, I, I also like the fact that they, they call their leader the tyrant. And there's that whole point that they make that they elect someone just like themselves to be leader. But then they call them the tyrant. <laughs> it's like, no one should want this job. As a side point, in Game of Thrones, the, the Tyrells, um, their name sounds most like tyrant, but they're the least tyrant-like family. This is a side point. That's just I thought that's interesting because they're the Roses mm. one with the, mm. the nice attitudes and the, the good grandma. I don't know, Lannister also sounds like the kind of name of someone who would run your like local corner store, whereas Stark always seemed a bit like... 
would punch mm. you at the pub. Yeah. They're, well, they're from the north. Yeah. That's the stereotype, isn't it? Mm. Uh, yeah. Yeah, Tyrell sounds like it could be a tyrant illusion, but it's not. No. No, it's not. But we do have a tyrant. The tyrant is not too pleased. I really like the way that he faces down Forbus and is like, mm. that's not what happened. We're better than you. We burned down your ships. We beat you. Now you're going to sign this peace treaty and we're all going to go home and it's going to be fine. And Vorbis is like outraged. And there's always that. I mean, it's one of the scenes where I was reminded that Vorbis really believes in this stuff. Like he's not a scheming manipulator in the sense that he's using the church for his own ends. He just really believes this is what should happen. But he believes in the structure of the church, not in what the church is about, whereas which is the opposite of brother. Isn't it? Yeah. Because he's like, the truth doesn't matter. What matters is the structure and that the building remains intact. He truly believes that what he, you know, what he thinks is right and what he mm. thinks of as omnianism is correct. And this is his way of dealing with the fact that the actual outside world does not match up to his internal picture of what it should be. And I think that makes him even more terrifying mm. than if he was venal and just doing this for power. Yeah. Because I think if you believe that you know the absolute truth without any scared of humility, then, yeah, you are fine with killing people. You are fine with torturing people to get them to see the light. You are fine with burning witches because, you know, you're saving their soul by killing their body. You know, this this is scary stuff. Mm. Yeah. And, and look, again, this is a book written in 1992. You know, the phrase fake news appears nowhere in it. Mm. But it's clearly this is the same thing that we're talking about or close to it. Yes, that's possibly because religion invented it before politicians took it over. <laughs> yeah, oh, it's depressing. Um, it, it really is. Mm. Uh, but look, you know, uh, Forbus gets uh, Brother to lead him out of the labyrinth after Brother has already been out to try and find some philosophers and learn about gods. Um, and in fact, he's instructed to do so by Vorbus and Om, who wants to find out more about how gods work, because Om hmm. understands his predicament, like he's only got one believer so far, and he doesn't really want to tell Brother that that's the case, because he's like, if you know, what will you do? Yep. But eventually he does come clean with him. I just feel uh, like with Brother and brother and Om, their whole thing is kind of like they're in a new relationship, and, <laughs> and Om doesn't want to be the one who's like, I need you. Yep. But he does, mm-hmm. but he doesn't want to put it into words, because he's like, oh, well, maybe that will, that will push him away, and he won't want me anymore and that will hurt me like it will quite literally hurt him because he if brother stops believing he'll become wind in the desert but like it just had that vibe he's like i just i don't want to be the one that needs so he's he doesn't kinda... want to make himself vulnerable yeah exactly i mean yeah. he's already quite vulnerable as it is he's got no further to fall because he's already quite close to the ground mm. i also thought it was really fascinating that you know as a god he doesn't really know how gods work because he's never had to think about it because yeah. You know, people, but he just knows I need believers, then I get more powerful. And now he's like, all right, but what happens? Like, how does this happen? Why do people stop believing in me? And that's when he really realizes what's happened is that because he's really confused for the first part of the book. He's like, but there's this whole church. Like, look at all this stuff. There's all these statues of me. Why don't these people believe in me? And now when he reads the scroll, he realizes, oh, they've kind of forgotten. Um, But also we get to meet Didactylos. Two fingers. Mm-hmm. I know. And it's, I, I quite enjoyed how, you know, Pratchett is not shy of reusing a joke when he mm. likes it. We recently covered The Color of Magic where a, a surprisingly similar blind philosopher who mm-hmm. can design things um, named Dactylos mm. was there. Uh, but, yeah, I, I thought uh, Didactylos was hilarious. Duo uh, flangy doesn't sound the same. <laughs> no. no. Oh, the poor guy. I mean, he doesn't expect anyone to actually believe in 
the turtle. No, he's you know, just writing moves. about scientific facts. Yeah, yeah. And, and that he's, you know, Simony wants him to start a revolution and, yeah. And he's very aware, like he's the kind of philosopher who understands how wrong and dangerous that would be. And so it's he's just he just can't do it, and it, it just I, yeah I really felt for him too in that yeah. moment um, when that happens. There's because, a great description of um, he was speaking in philosophy, but they were listening in gibberish. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, I do actually when we first meet uh, Didactylos and his nephew Ern, um, I really enjoyed the way that they're talking about philosophies as though they're like knickknacks in a mm. corner store, and it had a real kind of steptoe and son kind of. <laughs> Um, I don't know, open all hours kind of, we're just storekeepers here kind of vibe to it, which I really, I really liked that. It felt very, it was very Mm -hmm. Python-esque. But yeah, brother goes into the library. He doesn't know how to read, but he takes one of the scrolls uh, so that Om can read it. And I like that Om like has to, he's got to walk up and down (laughs) the thing. And I also really liked that, you know, Om goes off by himself to find Didactylos and brother has to go and find him. And when they find him, it's one of my favorite parts of the book. He's drawing little geometric shapes in the sand like a computer turtle. Yes. Oh, it was so good. I remember that program from school. Can you explain this more? Because I don't know what you're talking about. So Ah. so, um, one of the really simple instructional programming languages to learn how programming works was called Logo. You would have a little, what they called the turtle, which in the software version was a little cursor on the screen, and you would give it instructions to make it draw simple geometric shapes. And the original version was a robot that actually looked a little bit like a turtle because it was a little dome with a little pen that you could make it go up and down. And when the pen was down, it would draw on the paper that it was on. And when the pen was up, it would stop drawing. It was one of the first ways that a lot of people, certainly people who are now in their 30s or 40s, learned how to write computer programs. That scene is not just cute. It has historical relevance. It does. For those of us who are now middle-aged. Yeah. See, I yeah. just thought it was very cute. <laughs> well, look, which it is. It, which it is, absolutely. And I also really enjoyed how it was one of the few times you really got to see how cunning Om could be. Yes. Because he was very purposefully getting that last one wrong so that tomorrow you could get better odds. And I was like, oh, that's very clever. I mean, then they, nobody comes back tomorrow because in between the whole city of Phoebe gets sacked by the Omnians. Hmm. Uh, but yeah. And the library burnt down. That is sad. Good thing someone looked at a bunch of the scrolls, though. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Now, we talked about Philip K. Dick, but mm. also this is a bit of Ray Bradbury now if we're talking classic sci-fi authors because mm. this is Fahrenheit 451. But uh, rather than different people, it's all in one head. Yeah. Mm. And uh, and he just – because brother can't read, but he can look at the scrolls and, uh, you know, with his photographic memory, remember exactly what's on them. Uh, he does that with – he doesn't do the whole library, but he does sort of what – um, Didactylos and Ern kind of mm. tell him are the most important bits. Yeah. Um, but and, he, and presumably he does later get to write them down again. But because they're all in his head, I, I kind of likes that the idea that all this knowledge in his brain couldn't just remain as pictures, and it starts to slosh out, mm. and he starts to comprehend some of it. And I thought that was really that was an interesting idea. Mm. Yeah. Mm. That was the bit where I suddenly thought, "Wow, a photographic memory, if it worked like that, would be so useful." Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. Um, I, uh, yeah. The modern remake where he's just played by a smartphone. (laughs) (laughs) He just takes photos of all the scrolls. Yeah. Imagine if you if you had a time machine, that's what you do, isn't it? You just sort of pick a night in the library of Alexandria and you just sort of show up and just be like. Uh, Shakespearean plays. Yes. Because they're lost ones. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm. Yep. 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 I mean, we don't all have an orangutan to do the job, so. No. Apparently Jane Austen might have had some more in manuscript. 
Emily Bronte's second book. What? Apparently may have been a second book after Wuthering Heights, burnt by Charlotte after Emily died. Mm. Why somebody invent time travel? Well, look, you know, there's a copy in the Unseen University for sure. Isn't there a bunch of lost Doctor Whos as well because of taping? Yep. Yep. So you could get on, on there. If Pratchett is right and life after death is what you expect it to be, Okay, it's got to be a library that has everything in it. See, I like, I really like that because I'd always hoped, like, my ideal scenario would be your questions get answered. Yes, I have so many questions. Yeah, mm-hmm. and answered by the people most equipped to answer them because mm-hmm. they would theoretically be able to be there as well. Which is great. Like, and I, I think that would be awesome. But then what would you do afterwards? No, but questions spawn questions, like, answers would spawn more questions. And I feel like okay. you could do that for eternity, probably. I, I need oh. the Odyssey. And then you can also start being one who answers questions for Mm, other people. That's true. I mean, if you're talking to people who were once people, as opposed to divine beings that know things that human beings don't, Mm. then you're only going to know what everyone's figured out up until that point. But then if you keep getting to meet people who die and join you, you're going to be able to follow the expansion of human knowledge and understanding, which is... Wow, this got plus, real philosophical. Plus, it's all the most beautiful places and accomplishments at their peak. So you can see the pyramids when they were completed. Mm. You can see the Hanging Gardens of Babylon. You can see all the things that you wouldn't, you can't, because as a point in time, you only get to experience a little bit. So the ideal scenario is your questions are all answered and you get to see all the things. So mm. maybe it, the whole thing is just time travel. Yeah, that can be pretty yeah. good. It's a little bit like, uh, you know, all those sci-fi stories where people ascend to being like energy beings mm. who can do anything. Like it happens in Star Trek a few times, happens in Stargate. Stargate, yeah. Uh, it doesn't really happen in Doctor Who very often. Uh, Star Wars, the Jedi seem to end up. Yeah, well, they, well, they become hang out in a tree. Mm. <laughs> my problem with that is in my ideal heaven, I could eat as much chocolate as I liked without mm-hmm. getting either sick or fat. Mm, so being, seems reasonable. being simply a, an energy being is not going to do it for me. But I guess you wouldn't want that as an energy being. So would you want to be an energy being? Because it's not really you. Well, it's mean, another form of death, really. You don't want to be composed yeah. of regular matter because that sort of you know decays and stuff. Well, it depends so. on what energy being is. Like if you're like one with everything or if it's just you without a corporeal body. Well, matter is energy as well. Yes, like, but like... Yeah. yeah. Uh, or like wherever you are, you feel like you have a corporeal body even if you don't because then you can enjoy all the corporeal body things like eating chocolate yeah well then we get into the death books and morphology and Mm. yeah well i i probably won't want chocolate after probably not yeah yeah anyway after we finish taping this podcast i'm going to have some chocolate while i'm still alive and can yeah Mm. yeah Mm. I've, i've even got some i can offer you oh well um, then, yeah. Let's wrap this up. Yeah, let's get onto it. Uh, but look, you know, this this all happens, and we we haven't said that Forbes has planned all of this, and it's yep. he's got this whole deal where, you know, they've taken a ship to a Phoebe. Such a Machiavellian derp weasel. I know, and like he's he's organised that he will have an army cross the desert, which is mm. impossible unless you spend a long time and many people's lives preparing a way for an army to cross the desert once. You know, a small force hiding caches of water as far into the desert as they can go and then more people doing that until 
people can use that as a staging point to go further into the desert and hide more caches of water and supplies. And, until... and a few people die, but, yeah, many people in the end. But they yeah. died for the greater glory of Om. Yep, and so in 20 years okay. there'll be a spin-off movie. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. We Vorbis has prepared this, um, and he sends brother to burn the library. Well, he doesn't actually send brother to burn the library. He sends other people to burn the library, and brother goes off to supervise. And Vorbis does not seem to have twigged that brother has had some sort of change of heart or enlightenment at this moment. But he certainly does. Once brother sort of stops the soldiers from burning the library long enough for him to preserve it, uh, and then escape through a secret tunnel onto urns. Um, steam-powered boat, uh, which is great. I love it. And I love how it's, it doesn't have a name, so they just call it the unnamed boat. <laughs> uh, and Brother tries to make his escape. And at the same time, the slaves and the citizens of Aphib fight back against the Omnian army uh, and turn the tide. They mm-hmm. free themselves. Also, uh, the deal that Om made back at the start earlier in the book comes back to bite him because mm. now it's time for a ship to be drowned. Mm. Uh, what a bad time for that to happen. Uh, <laughs> yes. He uh, water thought of that more earlier. Yeah. Uh, and I, I do kind of love that Om like tells brother to leap out of the ship so he doesn't get drowned with the ship. But then the Queen of the Sea notices the big Omnian ship and goes, oh, I'm going to have much more fun drowning that instead. And which is the bit in the book where they talk about how dumb the gods are. Yes. <laughs> it's pretty rough. Um, and she just sort of gets distracted like a dog that sees a bigger ball. Uh, mm. It's just like, oh, I want that one. And he gets shipwrecked or, or washed up on shore. Mm-hmm. And so does Vorbis. Uh, and they're at the edge of the desert. Om is there as well. And brother decides he's going to take Vorbis with him, even though Vorbis does not wake up. So I've forgotten about this bit. When does Vorbis find out about Om? He doesn't. Doesn't he? He no. never finds out about Om. Um, I don't think brother even ever tries to tell him. Oh, he, the only thing brother says to him is he's like, Om didn't speak to you in the desert. Like mm. he, he tells him he knows what happened, mm. but he doesn't say Om spoke to me. Although there's some suggestion because brother speaks in his sleep that maybe that's part of it. But also I think what he's saying in his sleep is some of the books that are still in his mm. brain. It's not, yeah. So it's hard I don't, to hide a turtle though. But Vorbis does know that he uh, didn't burn the books or, mm. he, yep. or he didn't die in the fire and was working with agents of the um, turtle heresy. So, yeah. Which is why Om keeps telling brother all the way through the desert to kill Vorbis. Yeah. And, mm. and Om gives the commandment, uh, do unto others before they do unto you. Yeah. <laughs> Which, look, in the desert, I can see why you would think that was a good plan. Um, and, yeah, that's a, it's a quite long sequence, actually, but there's mm-hmm. some great bits in it, like when he finds the old temple, which used to belong to a god that's now been reduced to small and no one even remembers what the god's name is. Yeah. And there's the mangy sort of desert lions that live there. And then he meets... Um, what's uh, the... Ungulant. Uh, Saint Ungulant. Mm-hmm. Saint yeah, Ungulant. how can I forget that? Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the priest of small gods. And it's interesting that, you know, it, it talks about him as though everybody knows who he is, but then it's quite clear that nobody's met him or seen him for a long time. And, and also he's, he's from Omnia. He's an Omnian. Yep. Uh, and the, they talk about how the Omnian traditions, they, they prefer those sorts of people to get as far away from the Citadel as possible. Absolutely. Which seems a bit weird because surely they'd be putting people like that to death. I don't know. Oh, no. I mean, if he's... He's a religious fanatic, yeah. But he's he's so. a fanatic of the right religion. You just want to let him go and do his thing in the desert, far away from you. 
Oh, I guess so. Because yeah, mm. probably technically the rules don't allow you to kill him. You'd have to those make up a yeah. heresy. Yeah. Yeah. So he falls through the loopholes. Mm. And you don't need to, you know, the easiest way of getting rid of them is just to say, yep, you go out into the desert and spend your time on a pole. Mm. Yeah. Mm. We're sending yeah. you on exchange. Yes. And he was useful for um, advising Brother how to get some actual water. Yes. Even though he doesn't do it very often himself because he's given all these visions of sumptuous feasts by the small gods, which are not real, of course. And one of my favourite things in the book is where he's about to be eaten by the the desert lion after Brother and Om and Vorbus leave. Uh, and then his imaginary friend that he's been talking to this whole time saves him from the lion. <laughs> brains him, brains the lion with so a rock. Good. Yes. How did this happen? Yeah. It's amazing. But uh, apart from that, what you've got is you've got a really traditional temptation in the desert. You mm. know, you've got a 40 days in the wilderness thing in which brother is being tempted. He gets pretty much the small gods are tempting him with the traditional power, wealth, food. You know, it's it's absolutely, that bit is, you know, just standard hagiography. Mm. You know? But he's got his god with him. Yep fending them off. Yes. <laughs> no, he's mine. Get away from him. Which is actually what the saints go through as well. Like, you know, they're protected by their faith in God. Mm. Oh, yeah. It's just usually not in the form of a small uh, tortoise. Of a small tortoise, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> angry tortoise who keeps doing ineffectual curses. Yeah. yeah. And that's not long after that when uh, Vorbis finally wakes up. He's been in this kind of weird stupor mm. where he's he's conscious or at least he's, he's not unconscious but he's not respond he's, he's like almost like he's in a coma of some sort so um, the poor brother is you know dragging him through the desert yeah because um, he, he feels like putting him on trial which is an idea that simony's put in his head mm. but he feels like that's probably the only way to change things if he's dead what process does it go yep. through but, nuremberg trials you yeah. need something but then yeah vorbus wakes up and grabs a tortoise out of the bushes, which he thinks is on, but it's not. It's another tortoise mm. and, like, kills it, basically. Mm. It's awful. Like, throws it into the rocks. Yes. Uh, where it, it doesn't die immediately. It gets eaten by an eagle. And we kind of cut to, after he's hit brother over the head with a rock, he arrives in Omnia on a donkey carrying mm. brother with him and claiming that, you know, Om has spoken to him in the desert. He is the eighth prophet. Yeah. And brother, who walked in the desert with him, is now a bishop. Yeah. We're getting, we're getting quite near the end of the book now because whilst brother has been transported across the desert by um, Vorbis and Vorbis has announced himself the new prophet and the new Cenobiarch, uh, leader of the Omnian Church. Which makes me wonder what happened to the old one. Yeah. Oh, he just leaves. They do mention him in passing. I think he just sort of ah, so gets put out to pasture kind Pope of deal. Benedict situation. Yeah, he's just sort of. He's retired now because okay. he's just a dot. Like he's described, you only meet him in the book like once or twice, but he's kind of, I got the impression he's described as a very doddery old man, mm. like who doesn't really do anything except go, mm, yes, blessings, like he's not really, he's why, not really into it. Why now for the power grab? Like, cause he was in charge as deacon. So I'm just yeah, but trying I to think, unpack his motivation here. Well, I think he believes it. I don't think his plan was to end up as the eighth prophet right now, but mm. I think when he ends up in the desert, and crosses the desert, his belief, the way that he thinks, is, well, I'm now the prophet. I think it's more that his plan in Ephib didn't work the way he wanted it to. Yeah. I think he had a plan about Omnia conquering Ephib, mm. didn't quite work. How's he going to fix this? He becomes the prophet and 
Yeah, because he doesn't have a long-term plan because without Om and Brothers' intervention, there would have been a massive war with all the other nearby nations and Mm. Omnia would have lost. Yeah. Because all the other nations have united against them. Mm. Yeah, Yeah, I don't think Vorbis had the foresight to see that. No, he's not really interested in external politics uh, beyond conquering these nations and bringing them into the fold one at a time. Yeah, and if you're completely convinced that your God is on your side, then you are convinced that your God will give you victory even if you, mm. you know, are lacking an arm. Five soldiers and no rations. Like, yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's that belief that you are right. Mm. And again, it's it's that thing where, you know, if you think, well, I can't be wrong, then you mm. don't question your motives or your actions. You yeah. just think, I'll just do it. I'll be right. I'll mm. succeed. And God is with me. And this is the point where... Um, kind of has to catch up. Oh, but mm. I was saying while that's all been happening, Simony and Ern have been preparing to start a revolution. Mm. Um, and Ern has been persuaded by Simony to turn his uh, steam engine into a tank. Basically, um, they end up building it as a turtle in the in the old school Roman sort of formation of shields kind of sense. Just the classic requisitioning of inventions for war or their yep. unintended things. It's just yeah, yeah. And Ern having no idea, Didactylus sees where this is going to go mm. and Ern is just, no, no, I'm making this really cool thing. Surely no one will use it for bad mm. purposes. He's just very shades of, and, and again, I think this comes back to Terry Pratchett's time working as a journalist covering nuclear power. Mm. Like this is very much shades of the Manhattan Project scientists here with like yep. some of them going, this is not going to be okay. And other one's going, no, it's fine. Like it's just a deterrent. Like also yeah. it could power the world. Like it'll be great. And Yeah. My, I discovered that my grandfather, who was an engineer in Britain, some of the work he'd done during World War II had eventually ended up in um, atomic bombs. Wow. Mm. Yeah, and he only mentioned that to me once near the end of his life and he was horrified. Yeah. And I was like, yeah, that, that can happen. Yeah. Well, look, they've, they've got their plans. They're getting ready to storm the castle with their steam-powered tortoise tank. But I, this is where um, Lucy comes into the picture. Mm. He doesn't interfere very much, but <laughs> yeah. he does do a couple of very key important things, one of which is that when Ern is getting sleepy, he's, like, snuck out of the citadel and he's in the camp where they're making it and he's making one of the important levers to control it. And he's falling asleep and he's like, it's very important that this cools down really slowly. And Lucy just pours cold water on it, just makes it really brittle so that at the crucial moment it breaks. And apart from, you know, giving one of his bonsai mountains to brother early on, which we then never see again. Like, mm-hmm. I don't think, I, I was, I thought that was a Chekhov's bonsai mountain. It's like a part of, <laughs> I think it's all it part is. of the extended metaphors of, again, levers and things. Um, because yeah. there's like the man who rushes out in the street and he's talked, talking about levers and he's naked because he's been in the bath. And there's the whole levers of if you're stuck on your back as a turtle, you try and use your head as a lever. And mm. the whole thing is also trying to move mountains, which is what's happening in this book. So it's, yeah, I I also wanted to see a proper like payoff for the mountain, but mm. I feel like it's part of an underlying thread of just like metaphors, imagery. Mm. Yeah, yeah. It was nice though. But yeah, that's his sort of, one of his main bits of meddling is mm. to is to do that, uh, which means that the tortoise sort of fails to storm through the gates at the appointed time. Um, and at the end, what of the a book, sentence! I know. <laughs> uh, but at the end of the book, his sort of superior in the uh, monastery, Lucy's. Um, I love that. Until we started this podcast, I didn't realize his name was Lucy. Lucy, yeah, it's so good. Um, in but, the sky with diamonds. Yeah. <laughs> 
but his superior's like, yeah, look, um, you know, he was supposed to die in a horrible holy war, but that's not what happened. And you're like, oh, and he doesn't seem phased. So the history monks are basically like, we make history. Like, yep. we don't make it fit to a particular notion of it. We just go and look at it to make it be. More than things. Yeah. yeah. Oh, that was quite nice. Uh, subversion of what we thought was going to happen mm. there. What do we think about Om's motivation at this point? Because Brother is going to confront Vorbus. Mm. And all this time, Om, who's been left behind in the desert, is making his way very slowly because he's a tortoise to prevent Brother doing that. Is that still just because he wants his one follower? I thought maybe by now Brother had rubbed off on him as well. I really thought that. And, and I think that's why when... Om grabs the eagle and he manages to get himself in the citadel and dropped right onto Vorbis's head and kills him, which is a, an allusion to a, another story. And and there's a surge of belief because that's mm. such a, like a, what that couldn't possibly mm. happen except by divine providence. And everyone believes in him again and he gets his full power back. And he's such a jerk. And I'm like, wait a minute. What happened to all the humanity you just learned, Om? Like power corrupts. Yeah. Like, but instantly when you're a god, apparently. But also, I guess he... We also, he's not totally to blame for that because the way that it works on the disc world is that not only does belief fuel the gods, but it also shapes them. And all these people suddenly believe in Om, but they believe in clearly a version of Om that's much closer to what has been taught to them mm. this whole time that they haven't been believing in him. So I guess that's possibly where it comes from. But I still, I still found that really hard because you'd seen this sort of softening and this humanization of om as he learns you know through this humbling experience of being a tortoise and being with brother to think a bit more like a human being as just as brothers thinking a bit more like a god or a prophet and then and then yeah he turns back into full-on god and he's a jerk except he argues with the other gods oh yeah that that's when he redeems himself yeah. but when he first appears like and he's giving his he's, he's doing his dialogue which is like got chapter numbers on it which i thought was yes. great uh that was a really nice touch um, yeah, you just seem like a jerk. But I have a theory. So um, we haven't properly explained it, I think, but the idea is that small gods just exist around the place and they can suddenly surge into power and being if they suddenly have belief in them through usually sheer luck and belief will shape them into something bigger and more powerful. The way I was imagining it is like just belief as a sort of nebulous, airy, fairy thing that suddenly puffs them up. But if in this situation where the eagle drops on onto Vorbis's head and causes this sort of divine situation. What if people's belief isn't just sort of like a pure, clear air, but the but it's coloured or it's a tangible thing? Like this is it's like a weird mixed metaphor here, but like the kind of belief you put in something, if your belief is in a vengeful God or in a mm. God that does these kind mm. of things, does that then shape the small god as it grows into a bigger one into that thing because the belief itself has structures well yeah, yeah i think we get that with the sheep goat metaphor mm. that sheep need to be driven but goats need to be led which is the other thing i remembered about this book over 20 years because when i was at theological college we learned that in um ancient palestine they had small sheep herds who were led by their shepherds you know, we think about Australian sheep herds with sheepdogs. Mm. And I was like, no, no, it was more like goat herding. Yeah, right. And I remember thinking, ah, oh, Terry Pratchett. Yeah. It's like if belief creates a giant mould in which the god then fills up yeah. and becomes 
And it can't expand beyond that or be less than that. It has to be what has been presented by the people who believe and give them the power. Yeah, because they suddenly really believe. Well, yeah, it's kind of like I was saying. They suddenly believe in this version of OM. But I think what you're saying is that it's not just the version that they've been taught. It's that the thing that causes them to believe is he's smiting Vorbis from above. And that's why he changes character so suddenly, like Mm. you said, because the thing that has caused him to grow in power and in size essentially has a shape that Mm. he can't subvert. Yeah. But I think it's also a really human thing that all the way through, Om has wanted to not be a tortoise. And he doesn't particularly care about anyone except his one believer. He just wants to have his power back. And when he does, for a moment, he is back to what he was because that's he's just longed to be this. It, it mm. takes a while for the lessons to actually percolate and for him to think. It's like when Mario jumps on a mushroom and suddenly he's like, I can kill things much more efficiently now. Yeah. And then. Well, he's also, you know, four times his normal size. Yeah, because he can. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Uh, look, I this actually this brings up something that is interesting to me and I, I, the question that I don't think is quite answered by the book is where small gods actually come from because – I always kind of thought this. This made me realize that something I thought about Discworld is not quite right because I'd always mm. kind of thought, well, on the Discworld, gods exist because people believe in them, but that's not true. They exist anyway. Mm-hmm. It's just that they become powerful and then given a shape and a personality by that belief. But Om can remember a time when he was a small god, mm. and he sort of vaguely remembers, you know, the small god before him that he kind of displaced, which then sort of vanished into nothing. But that they don't vanish into nothing; they end up back in the desert. And you're like, well, where does is that? That's just a that's just a feature of the disc world. They're just mm. there. They're mm. just you know, it's like air or light or yeah. sound on the disc world. There are small gods mm. yeah. waiting for someone to believe in them. They're, it sounds like they're spirits of place. Yeah, mm. and yet later on, you get a, a different kind of interpretation of this. Where in Hogfather, where there's this sort of excess of belief, all of a sudden, it does spontaneously create new mm. gods rather mm. than blow up existing ones. Yeah. Um, Which kind of is my theory that Santa is a small god, like our Santa. Mm. Like the real, the round the re- world Santa. But the, you know, the, the red hat and the, the yeah. Or it was and a the small reindeer. God. He's not a small god anymore. No, no, but as in like he was, and then suddenly like maybe he left a gift on a doorstep or it was like, and then suddenly Santa. <laughs> yeah. 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 Which is kind of what happened because there was a guy called St. Nicholas who punched heretics but also gave gifts to prostitutes and... Why the Red isn't there is a new. film about him? That sounds amazing. I'd watch the heck out of that. Every Christmas, my colleagues and I will talk about, yeah, we're going to celebrate Christ- Christmas the way it should be celebrated, the way St Nick would want <laughs> punching by a punching a heretic. <laughs> can someone, maybe start with a play. This There's time. Me. It's January. We can yeah. we can put together a play by Christmas. <laughs> we can do it. We can do it. This it's actually that reminds me of uh, the Weirdo Yankovic film UHF, where he's got this like spoof Gandhi too. He's a one man wrecking crew, <laughs> <laughs> and he just like punches like some drug dealers and yep. kills them. And you're like, oh yeah, Saint Nicholas. Hmm. Um, yeah, I, that's, pugilistic Nick. I, <laughs> I'm going to have to read up on Sir Nick. Like, I knew he was a real person, but I'm like, oh, no, I don't know anything about this punching heretics business. This sounds great. Uh, You know, enemy of heretics, friend to sex workers. What a dude. Uh, Uh, He also brought back to life three boys who had been murdered, chopped up and pickled in a barrel. Wow. That is a huge, like, is that what he got sainted for? Is that his miracle? That was one of the, the many. Just, yeah. Wow. Okay. The best present was coming back to life after being horribly murdered. 
that was <laughs> and pickled. <laughs> Those kids must have been on the nice list. That's 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 for sure. Yeah, they definitely brushed their teeth for the full full however many minutes. Mm. I look. I mean, we're this is we're basically at the end of the story now. The the, the big important thing that we haven't covered is, as we said, Om kind of redeems himself by going up to Dun Manifesta in the home of the, the gods. <laughs> I know it's a good, it's a, such a good gag. We love it every time yeah. uh, because the massed armies of the other nearby nations have come to finally put an end to Omnia after they've, you know, sacked a Phoebe and they're like, this is it. This is the final straw. We're getting rid of them. Uh, but Om goes up there and strong arms the other gods because he's super powerful while he's got this fresh flash of massive belief and says, tell your followers to go home. And they do. Um, and there's there's a great line, actually, uh, of what he tells them to say. What the gods said was heard by each combatant in his own language and according to his own understanding. It boiled down to, one, this is not a game. Two, here and now, you are alive. But Om does this partly because brother convinces him to. Oh, that's true, yeah. It's not just of his own volition, is it? And Brother also has a Peter Capaldi Doctor Who moment mm. where he's talking to all the um, the other soldiers yeah. saying, okay, you're going to come, you'll defeat us, you'll occupy us. In another generation, you know, people will come to overthrow you and at the end people will say, if only when they were back on the beach they had been able to discuss this. Oh, yeah. So it's, I mean, it's its not as angry and it doesn't have a Scottish accent, but it's pretty much Peter Capaldi Doctor. Yeah. You know? I mean, look, that speech is extraordinary, the one that you're talking about in, in mm. Doctor Who. Told you there was another Doctor Who moment. Yeah. I can't believe I didn't spot you this <laughs> time around. Uh, that's uh, horrendous of me. Uh, and I like that the conversation between the gods is basically like a Twitter stoush. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I've I've got more followers than you right now, so just just back off. Yeah, yeah. that's true. I never thought of that. Yeah, like that, does that mean like all every account that's an egg is a small god? Ooh. Yes, and if you follow them, you'll give them power and they'll grow. So don't don't, don't follow don't them. Follow them. Oh, and the the bit where he kills guy um, is his viral video where he suddenly gets a whole burst of new followers, <laughs> and that's why he suddenly has more power. But. I think I think the actual core, the heart of this, the culmination of the book is actually a page before that mm. right here and now you are alive because basically everyone is being attacked. Um, the, the world is falling apart on all these people who are lined up. The gods are angry and everyone's at risk of being destroyed and so they start helping each other and it says, and no one, as they hauled on timbers in the teeth of the gale, as Ern applied everything he knew about levers, as they used their helmets as shovels to dig under the wreckage, asked who it was they were digging for or what kind of uniform they'd been wearing. Mm. And that, I think, is the, the heart of it. It's that, it's that humanitarianism of Terry Pratchett coming through. Yeah. Where it's like, it doesn't matter what you believe, we're all human beings. Yep. We're all in this together, whether you want to think about it as us and them or not. Like, it's just us. Yeah, you know? ultimately humanity is... Is us. Yeah. yeah. And then we skip forward 100 years, basically, is that this happens. Brothers, the new Cenobiarch, he's recognized as the eighth prophet. And he changes the church of Omnia. He reforms it and turns it into something much more peaceful, Mm. more um, accepting of outsiders. He makes all these concessions to the visitors. It's like, yeah, you can be free. You don't have to be part of the empire. That's fine. Um, And and he, he doesn't want people to do that because the gods have commanded them to. Yeah. Mm. 
He's like, it's fine to believe in the God, but we have to be good people on our own. It's, it's sort of part of his message, isn't it? Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Which it's just, yeah, it's, it's nice. Very and, good. And you don't often, I mean, not a lot of Terry Pratchett books end up with someone being in charge. Like they often sort of, they do the good thing and then they go back to kind of their own life. And often they do get a reward and maybe they get a promotion, like it happens to Sam Vimes like a thousand times. Um, Moist von Litwick usually gets kicked upstairs to the next terrible job. Mm-hmm. Um, but he doesn't, but his main reward is he doesn't get horribly killed. Like even like in pyramids where the protagonist is the rightful heir to the throne, mm. he doesn't take it. He, he runs off. Whereas in this one, yeah, brother becomes the center biarch and we just skip to the end of his life. Mm. They go, he spent a hundred years reforming his church, making life better for Omnians and anyone who deals with them. And he's ending his life going, but there's still so much to be done, which I thought was just such a wonderful way to sum up his way of thinking about it. Yeah, I really liked that. And then you have the fabulous bit at the end where we discover that Vorbis, who died a hundred years ago, Mm. has just been waiting at the beginning of the desert. He hasn't, he's been too scared to walk across the desert because he, has to do that by himself. Which is a nice callback to Frit, mm. who he murdered for having his beliefs, who mm. also had the desert fear, but when he meets death, he comes to terms with the idea of going across it alone, and actually the desert becomes less terrifying. Yep. And so. also, I mean, Frit had brother's religion right at the beginning because Frit's the one who realises that what he believes is that on the whole and by and large, if a man lived properly, not according to what any priest said, but according to what seemed decent and honest inside, then it would, at the end, more or less turn out all right. Yeah. When I was in high school, when I was first starting to read these books, I didn't have a lot of pictures on my school books or folders. I had a lot of quotes that I transcribed out of books and printed up in various different fonts. And that was one I had on one of my main textbooks. Mm -hmm. And it really resonated with me because I, I had grown up in a very non-religious household. My, my parents have very much sort of let me sort of figure it out for myself. And that was kind of, that was basically sort of the conclusion that I came to, mm. which was like, well, I think you have to do the right thing. And I, you know, and I obviously have failed at that at times in my life. Um, and I'm always striving to do better, but that, that quote, I think just summed up so well what I, what I kind of felt, mm. you know, mm. And that was partly because I also grew up around in, in my high school um, people with very different religious beliefs. You know, I had friends who were um, very devout, some of them like sort of very extremely devout Christians. Like I had um, I had one person I knew in high school tell me I was going to hell, not for anything in particular except that I was not a Christian. Um, yeah, I got told and, that too because I wasn't baptized. So they said I wouldn't go to hell. They said I was going to be left outside the pearly gates forever. Okay, on oh, behalf of all Christians, I apologize. Oh, no, that is crap theology. You don't have to apologize for that. <laughs> That's okay. it, I, I don't blame these people who told us either because they were... They That's were, what they believe. They were kids, right? They were the high school students. Someone else had told them that. And I, you know, and I had some brushes with some really oddly intense, like, Anglicans, right? <laughs> like, when I was in religious study school, in primary school, they were the kind of people who showed you the video about how all rock stars were evil because they worship Satan and that's why they all choke on their own vomit. And so there's a video of that? Yeah, and there was a video they showed us and it and it, and I knew this was the problem. This is this was what really set me on the path of I don't now I'm very distrustful of any of these religious yep. organizations mm-hmm. because they showed us the video and one of the things it said was even the Beatles because on the cover of Sgt Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club band Satan is there. And I went home and looked at my copy, my mum's copy of the, he's not there. That's a lie. He's not there. Like I was like you didn't even identify. You you made that up. Like you could have. 
what? I was so annoyed. And this is before smartphones. So how are they showing? Did they like lend you a tape or like how do you? No, no, no. It was a VHS video that they played us in the classroom. Yeah. And so after that, I was like, uh. and I remember, you know, and we had, we had some troublemaker kids in my school too. So um, they used to ask like the really difficult questions that these particular, like they sort of engendered the questions in us by some yeah. of the things they were trying to teach us. Like one of the kids was like, well, what if a baby dies when it's like just after it's born, does it go to hell or what? And, the, and, and we were like, you know, I'm, this is primary school. Like we were like nine or 10. And the answers they gave us were like horrendous. Hmm. And I was like, mm, I don't feel good about this. But there's a great line in Sean McAuliffe's new book, which is like a series of satirical plays. And he's doing like a version of Faust. And the, he's, the guy's a chiropodist and he's being offered this deal for his soul. And he's like, oh, well, what happens if you take my soul? I don't want to go to limbo with all them babies. <laughs> and I was like, <laughs> I was just like, that's so good. Wow. In one line. Wow. That's the scary a, thing is some of that stuff still gets taught in religious education or did recently because I used to have this side um, vocation of explaining to children that what they'd been taught in school, no, that's that's not what we believe. Oh, yeah, good. good. Oh, you're, doing, you're, doing, you're doing the Lord's work <laughs> quite li- well, literally, obviously, but also <laughs> thank you. But, yeah, it's just it's, it's, so, it's such a weird thing. And I think that, you know, it's – the voices that you hear loudest are always those sort of most extreme, mm, like mm. horrendous ones. Because the people who are fairly moderate, who just sort of get along with their faith from day to day, they're kind of they're kind of like frit, you know. Yeah. Like they think, like by and large, you know, you do what's right, things are going to work out all right in the end. And yeah, I go to I do believe, and I go to church if if that's what they do. But you know, they believe much the same thing that someone like me, who's yeah. who's pretty religious, believes. And so we don't really feel the need to talk about it we never get into a stoush about it doesn't really come up also i think i mean if you've got a a humility about your faith it actually makes it really hard to be loud and um, preachy about it Mm. because there's always a well this is what i believe and i believe it's the truth in whatever way you understand the truth but i understand that not everyone believes that and it's that's a really hard message to shout on a street corner Mm. yeah like once you've got nuance, if you if you believe something's uh, to use a different version of the, or meaning of the word simple, like in some ways what Vorbis believes is quite simple, but the mm. lengths he has to go to inside his own mind to consistently believe it mm. are quite complex. He's doing double think, you know, mm. and he can say, "Oh no, there's lots of rules. So you're breaking them." Like it, that, he can be very black and white about things in a way that doesn't really fit in with the real world. So he has to change the real world to fit into it. The other thing that I I definitely believe that is written in this book is about the daily wondrousness of everything and the fact that if human beings actually stopped and thought about how amazing everything is, we would just go around with big stupid grins and Mm. um, we need to spend a lot of time, you know, forgetting how astonishing it is that anything exists. They lived in a world where the grass continued to be green and the sun rose every day and flowers regularly turned into fruit and what impressed them? Weeping statues and wine made out of water. Yeah. Yeah. And it's like, yeah, the, the world is astonishing. And yeah, this, this book, I mean, it has a direct allusion to Richard Dawkins, and I'm sorry mm. to, to bring him up, um, uh, particularly if you happen to be one of the um, scientists who in a recent survey revealed that a large proportion of British scientists hate him and the survey wasn't even about him. That was, that was amazing. One of the things I'm most proud of yeah. is after I started the sci-fi service, the Dawkins site in America 
said I was the scariest sort of Christian because I made it seem nice. Oh, yeah, wow. See, this is the, the, the reason that I was thinking about it is that a long time ago, he wrote this great book um, called Unweaving the Rainbow, which is kind of exactly about that because there's this, I think it's a Keats poem where he mm. complained that when Lyon Newton broke up light through a prism into the different colours and said, oh, that's how you get a rainbow and explained how it worked, that he broke it and made it less wonderful. Whereas I think, you know, certainly I've always thought, and I think a lot of scientists and, and anyone who sort of gets interested in natural philosophy and, and nature understands that, no, the more you understand it, the more wonderful and amazing it becomes. Mm. Um, and I think those are two quite, it, it's it's hard to be in the middle of those two viewpoints. I think you kind of think one way or the other. But nature is not like a magician's trick where the whole point is that you're being deceived and you don't know how it works. Like nature is like, this is how the world is and it runs by itself and that's incredible. And yeah. and at the beginning of um, modernism and when things like, when people were discovering fossils, for example, and on the one hand there were some people terrified, oh, no, there are fossils, creationism can't, can no longer survive. You had a whole lot of scientist clergymen, all men at the time, saying, no, the more we learn about the wonders of the world, the more impressive God seems because this place is amazing. Yeah. Yeah, and I kind of come on that stream. Yeah. Although this is partly because I have no scientific knowledge whatsoever. <laughs> well, you know, you don't need a lot of scientific knowledge to appreciate the wonder of nature, I feel. <laughs> so, look, that's the end of the book, which means that just before we get on to the questions, we got so many of them this time around, just quickly, are there any favourite bits that anyone didn't get to read out that they would like to share? I think the very end, when there is the sign of hope even for Volbus. Mm, yeah. The fact that Brother is going to allow Volbus to accompany him across the desert. Yeah, that is really a touching, lovely moment. Yeah, I like that. Uh, I, I, I mentioned earlier that I really enjoyed the philosophy pub fight. I just want to read <laughs> read a little bit of it. Um, then a door burst open down the street and there was the cracking noise of a quite large wine amphora being broken over someone's head. A skinny old man in a toga picked himself up from the cobbles where he'd landed and glared at the doorway. I'm telling you, listen, a finite intellect, right, cannot by means of comparison reach the absolute truth of things because being by nature indivisible, truth excludes the concept of more or less so that nothing but truth itself can be the exact measure of truth. You bastards, <laughs> he said, which I just thought was so great. And then someone from inside the building said, oh, yeah? Says you. And it's almost impossible to read that without doing like these sort of cockney like <laughs> argument accents in your brain, which is why I read it that way. But I, yeah, I love that. Oh, so good. I enjoyed all of the curses that he tried to do. Um, oh, yeah. But um, I enjoyed this quite a lot. Fear is a strange soil. Mainly it grows obedience like corn, which grows in rows and makes weeding easy. But sometimes it grows the potatoes of defiance, which flourish underground. The Citadel had a lot of underground. Mm, yeah, that was good. Yeah. I love the bit where um, Simony, Simony, the atheist, is now confronted by his god and his god points out that, you know, you're very brave to declare atheism in the face of his god. And he says, this doesn't change anything, you know, said Simony. Don't think you can get round me by existing. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that does remind me too. There's that great bit when they're in the boat and Simony's like saying, he doesn't exist. And he's holding his sword up and Om's like saying to brother, I like this boy. <laughs> <You know? laughs> he's good. Because it's almost that like that fierce, like unbelief, like, no, I hate you is, is as good as any other kind. Look, I'll do one more. We've touched on a lot of mine, but um, I do. I did really enjoy the scalbies. <laughs> um, so I just want to read the paragraph that describes them. 
Seagulls never ventured this far along the desert coast. Their niche was filled by the Scalby, a member of the Crow family that the Crow family would be the first to disown and never talked about in company. It seldom flew, but walked everywhere in a sort of lurching hop. Its distinctive call put listeners in mind of a malfunctioning digestive system. It looked like other birds looked after an oil slick. Nothing ate Scalbies, except other Scalbies. Scalbies ate things that made a vulture sick. Scalbies would eat vulture sick. Scalbies ate everything. I'm just like, oh man, that forget bin chickens. Like yeah. that's that's your real grossest of the birds. And just just for the record, I'd like to say I actually quite like ibises. Hmm. I think they're quite beautiful. I would love a spin-off picture book of just that. Just that. <laughs> just just discworld animals. No, no, just scalpies. scalpies. Oh, <laughs> just like oh, gross. But like in a, in like a three year old sing song sort of way, it's like. Look at Scalby over there. Look at Scalby's dirty hair. Like, <laughs> oh, well, we've got to write it now, don't yeah. we? This Look is at Scalby be... in the sea. Who is Scalby? Scalby's me. And then it goes to like <laughs> its point of view. And it's like the day in the life of me as a Scalby. Like, yeah. Wow. Okay. Yeah. But why aren't you a children's author, Liz? That was extraordinary. <laughs> well, I mean, maybe I'll be doing that this year. <laughs> All right. Shall we, shall we move on to questions? Yes. Our first one is from Michael Dart who says, Small Gods is probably my favorite. I feel there's a good case for recommending it as someone's first Pratchett. Thoughts? Well, it definitely has the benefit of being a standalone novel. Mm. You don't need to have read any of the other Discworld books. There are no characters. Well, I mean, there's a couple of minor characters, you know, and Ibid who appear in the background. But, yeah, you, I, I think it works pretty well. Uh, although it is a little bit removed from the setting of a lot of the other books, so it might give you, in some ways, maybe a bad idea of what the other ones are like. But it's in its heart and tone, it's very much a Discworld book, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. I, jokes. I think people who enjoyed it would enjoy other Discworld. They wouldn't feel cheated because the same characters don't appear or it's not exactly the same setting. And you yeah. get a chuckle when um, Dibbler, the the real Dibbler, shows up and you're like, oh, it's like the other guy. <laughs> in like, the Yeah, he's oh, like I the, the bizarro world one. Um, yeah. I think it's a good one, again, for the same reasons. It stands alone well. Um, my only thought would be, it would need to come with a strong endorsement. Like you'd have to be like, oh, it's really good. Like just just trust me on this. Because, <laughs> mm. I mean, for me, I found the names of the characters put me off in the blurb and the description. It's like, oh, is it going to be boring? They've got all these complicated uh. names and is it going to be too hard to keep track of? And I know that's a very superficial thing, but people have limited time. And if you're trying to get them into Discworld, which can be notoriously tricky, you've got to get them. So the names might put them off. You go, no, no, it's good. Mm. You've got to sell it. I do want to defend well. the names in the book, though, just I a love little them. bit, because there's some really good ones, particularly philosophers like Aristocrates. Uh, there's Orange Crates, which is clearly meant to be pronounced that way because of how it's spelt rather than Orange Crates. Yeah. Uh, that was hilarious. Um, FedEx, Messenger of the Gods. <laughs> oh, I, I love the names, don't get me wrong. Yeah. It's more if you look at the blurb and you go, is this high fantasy rather than comedy, like than the, than the lighter mix we think? Because like, I... I, if I pick this up cold, mm. I might think it's high fantasy. And if I wasn't looking for that, I might just put it straight back down again. Yeah. Yeah. But within about five pages, you've got. But to get people yeah, to like those that. five pages. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Past the blurb and the cover, you mean? Yes. Yeah, so I'm not, yeah. I'm saying it's a great book. I love it. The 
names are good, but I feel like if you didn't know anything about it, you could get the wrong impression without a strong sort of, no, it was very good. Right. Read so it. <laughs> you're talking about like convincing someone to read a Discworld book who hasn't thought about doing it yet. Mm. Um, whereas I think if someone is like, I want to get into this world, what's a good book to start with? This is, we yeah. think this is a perfectly good suggestion. Mm. Absolutely. Yeah. But the other way around might need a bit more convincing. Mm. Yeah. Um, so we've got a question from Aaron Frost, which came via Facebook. Is Vorbis the most scary, believable and fleshed out of Sotary Pratchett's bad guys? I kind of felt like it's interesting because I, I mostly would say yes, but there was a there was a part of me that felt like there was something missing about the explanation for who he was and why he was that way. I was like, well, what does he want? And I think that this is sort of me trying to ascribe a st- more standard motivation to a character who is designed not to have one. So I don't really find it that sort of off-putting or disappointing. I actually still think he's he's really frightening, but I think there is still a little element of that to me where I don't, there's something about him that I don't quite get, which I think is part of why he's terrifying. Mm. I think he's an example of the how terrifying blind faith is mm-hmm. because to a rational person it doesn't make sense. Mm. How could somebody firstly believe this and secondly act on it? And, you know, we're told that in Vorbis's case it's because of his, you know, nothing gets in, nothing gets out mind. But definitely I think the most terrifying thing about him is the bit where it's said that he makes others like himself. Mm. He's terrifying not just because of what he does to other people but what he makes other people do. And not even just the people who, you know, ostensibly work for him. Like the biggest horrible part of that is the influence he's had on Simony. Yeah, who's yeah. his becomes his equal and opposite number mm. and, and equally willing to kill the innocent for the sake of what he believes in. Mm. I, so I can't compare him to other villains in the Discord series because they are so distinct. I do find him extra scary because he's so utterly believable. Like he's not a grand vizier or he's not someone that you're like, oh, well, he belongs in the book and he couldn't exist in our world, even though most of them they couldn't exist in some form. But he could almost exist as he is. Mm-hmm. In It's not just in a religious context. He could be in an office. He could be in your sports team. He's the sort of person who is terrifying, believable, and horrifyingly not rare. I think to me that's the scariest part. Like there are people who blindly follow the rules in their head, not just for religion but for any cause, and that's what makes Vorbis so scary to me because he is real and he's everywhere. I find him particularly terrifying because he is a religious villain because, yes, throughout history you've got religions that basically say, you know, love one another. And then you see what people do in the name of that. And firstly, I find that really confusing. Like, okay, you you have your core belief that God has called you to love one another and so you're going to show that by killing people. Um, but the fact that it is so common that when people are certain that they have the truth, one of the things they do with that is, you know, villainy. I feel like there's just dormant ones everywhere waiting for the opportunity that will open the door to act, allow them to commit atrocities like mm. he does. Like most of them would probably just go through their life being a bit sort of the person you don't want to be around who just makes you a bit uncomfortable. But the fact that they're around there and if the opportunity shines on them, they'll spring up. That's the scary bit. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Mm. All right. So um, on that cheery note, we've got a question from Jonas Larson. Um, what do you think of the Black Desert Sea? It returns in later books and takes the air of standardized afterlife. Is it better or do you prefer the more differentiating ways to go in other books? 
Um, look, I don't remember it showing up so often that I ever thought of it as standard. Mostly you don't see where people are going. And it's clearly also it's it's part of the journey, not the destination. Mm. Like you journey across the desert. It's kind of a bit like it reminds me of the video game Grim Fandango based partly on the, the sort of Mexican Day of the Dead style afterlife. And you play someone whose job is to be a travel agent in the afterlife selling people their means of traveling across the mm. land of the dead to their final reward. Um, and this is kind of like what the desert is about. You've got to cross the desert to get there. So I still feel like he's still going to various different places. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I don't remember it being that common. It might be something that crops up more in books that we read. But like, for example, Men at Arms, which is after this, it's not what happens to Cuddy, you know. He fades away into the dwarvish, well, he's a ghost briefly. But yeah, so mm. I don't know. I really like it. I like the idea that what happens after death is you confront yourself, mm. that you find out who you really are and what you're really like. Um, and in this case, by you know, walking across the desert by yourself. But that idea that um, once you've died, you lose all the illusions that we have to protect ourselves in life and we actually need to confront who we actually are. Mm. And I kind of, I mean, if I have no idea of what form an afterlife takes. Um, and I believe that if that happens, then ultimately that happens while we're surrounded by love and it, basically it'll all be okay. Um which I say in much nicer words at funerals. But that idea of of us realising who we actually are, I think, is... Um... Mm. And, you know, you get that moment where death says to Vorbis, you've probably heard that hell is other people. Mm. And he says, you will find out that that's not true. And, yeah, Vorbis is horribly terrified of being alone mm. because his whole... And I, I kind of interpreted that as being part of his entire existence, is relying on having other people to tell them what to do and now he's just by himself and there's nothing except him and he has to confront who he is and what he's done in a context where it's like well this is not what i believe <laughs> this is not what mm. i thought would happen um yeah uh, whereas it's it's the it's clearly like the folk belief of the omnium people from before mm. the the church kind of um grew to a point where it displaced it um which is yeah interesting um, which was a comment, actually, that um, that question about death. Uh, that was from uh, a chew and sneeze, Daniel Log on uh, Twitter. Can someone smarter than me explain why death tells Vorbis that hell is other people? Not correct. Well, he's he's saying it's not correct. Um, mm. and, uh, and also, although it did seem a little bit odd that is Vorbis the sort of person to whom someone would ever have said that? Um, but he would have heard it, like, as a common expression and mm. probably considered it heresy. Yes, he's, he's undoubtedly read Jean Paul Sartre and then decided that no one else should be allowed to read him. Mm. Yeah. yeah, yeah, he's done it. He's taken one for the team. Yeah, it's, you know, the it's like the the library customs used to have of all the books they wouldn't allow to be imported into Australia. <laughs> Surely they just needed a name. They didn't need the whole copy of the book. No, no, they kept the books. Oh, <laughs> yeah, okay. I guess. Well, yeah, someone tried to smuggle it in under a different title, I suppose. I should say I'm not condoning the um, banning of books, by the way. <laughs> um, I'm just considering the practical side of it. Um, and I think Vorbis, as part of his evilness, would have banned books. Well, he did worse than that. He burned them. Yes. That's just rude. Mm. Um, we've got another question from a chew and sneeze, which I really love. What are the eight or three more pathetic things than an upturned tortoise? So, I mean, I think I can come up with at least one. Oh, yeah. But um, I don't know. That's... A politician crying when they've lost power. Oh, that's oh. funny. No, I 
I, I find myself feeling vaguely sorry for them and really annoyed that I'm feeling sorry for them. It depends on the politician, though, because – and sometimes it doesn't feel like – it feels like not real crying. Mm. Like it's like pity me crying. I don't know. It's yeah. – you got to look into their soul and see is this like actual crying. So, I mean, I have empathy I probably, but I don't know. Yeah. Oh, I don't know. It's it's a tricky one because you, you know there's, it's the temptation is to go satirical people being offended by being called racist. Um, mm. oh. oh yeah, which is kind of pathetic. Oh, what is pathetic? But. A white middle class man talking about how oppressed he is. Mm. That mm. must be at the top at the moment. Mm. By, by say angry a, a razor commercial. Oh. Yes, yes. Let's not go there. Let's not go there. But <laughs> but we'll go there. But we won't go there yeah. for long. Um, yeah. Look, those sort of things also pretty pathetic. Um, I, yeah. Sorry, I've got a nice comment from Steve Leahy. Um, so it's more of a comment than a question. It's, when you cover small gods, you should set Neil himself's American Gods as supplementary reading. They book in very nicely. Way to see into the future, Steve. Oh. That was very good because this was from before. So, oh, yeah. yeah so I just thought I'd draw attention to that. Right. Mm. And here's a question from Stuart. Do you prefer the more mysterious small gods, Lucy, or the more loquacious Thief of Time incarnation? I really like them both. I mean, I think for me, the, the best part is the the bonsai mountains. Mm. Yes, um, but I do feel like when he's more, when he speaks more, he becomes less of that sort of stereotype of the like foreign wisdom giver, mm. um, which you know he kind of does fit into here a little bit. But also here, he's much more hands off. He's sort of mostly there to observe, and he just interferes a little bit um, to the point. I mean, he's in it so little that you kind of go. Why are you here? And you wonder if I, I have actually wondered whether Pratchett stuck him in here so that because he already had the idea for Thief of Time, mm. and he wanted to establish who these people were. But yeah, um, I, I kind of like it when he talks a bit more because he becomes less of that sort of archetype. You just know him, and I, I like that. Yeah, yeah, I I love him here, and I love the fact that his his tiny intervention is um, cooling the lever too fast, mm. and you know. Because I think it, it is because of that that you know brother doesn't die. There isn't a hundred years of, you know, war. Yeah, I like I do like the relationship he has with his abbot too. Mm. Yes. He's just like, yeah, it didn't happen. It's mm. all right. Also, as someone who's occasionally a historian, I like the idea that you need to observe history mm. or it's it doesn't happen. Yeah, yeah. it's a series <laughs> of things. Otherwise, yeah. <laughs> yep. Like yes, that's what we're here for. Um, here's one from Jonas Larson. Um, what do you think would happen if the surprise bronze turtle from this cover and the surprise wooden horse from Eric met? What kind of adventurous podcast would they start? <laughs> now, this is, we talked about this in Eric. Like We've got two inanimate objects here that are reacting as if they're alive in the cover <gasps> art for these books. Yep. Um, I, look, I think it would be it's the Startled Statues podcast. <laughs> yes. Where they just sort of talk about the thing that startled them this week. <laughs> Um, which was like, they strapped a dude to me and set him on fire. Um, that was a bit startling. But with the turtle, it's mostly going to be, there was this much weight and he couldn't see what it was. It's like, mm. yeah. You'd need a quite impressive podcasting setup. Like, yes. The turtle is quite big, but the the horse is like three, four stories tall. I feel like, but like, would they do a good podcast or would the horse be a bit wooden? <laughs> Yeah, okay. Well, it, it, that's and, a good question. And it could be a pretty slow going, like with the turtle. Well, I'm a little bit worried that the sound might be a bit tinny. Mm. Mm. No, it's bronze. It's not the same. Now don't let's start. Oh. <laughs> let's move on quickly okay. to another question. All right, one from Lucas Davenport. 
The biggest question I have is what goes through Vorbis's mind as Bruth, brother carries him across the desert, and at what point does Vorbis regain his faculties during that trip? Pratchett gives no clues of his awakening until Vorbis brains Brutha. It's a lot of brains. There's mm. a lot of brains. I think I think he's I think he's processing things internally for quite some time before he sort of comes to his senses. I I, I think it's a bit strategic in in that. And I said before that it, I didn't feel like he was really scheming on purpose, but I think some part of him is like let brother expend all the energy mm. getting me as far across the desert as possible. When I think I'm within a stone's throw of getting home safely, that's when I'll, you know, knock him yeah. out and go the rest of the way myself. So the scorpion on the turtle is a little bit smarter. Yeah. Mm. But he's also, um, he's interpreting that as this is how I get across the desert. This is, Om is guiding me yep. by letting brother take me. So, um, and then at the right moment I have to knock him out because he's in, he, he knows by this stage that brother is, you know, a heretic in one way or another but he's willing to overlook it because he's, you know, he wants to bring a witness back with him, I think. Mm. Maybe he's spending that time getting himself back to the state of mind he was in before he went to a Phoebe. Like maybe, I mean, I know it says that nothing goes in, nothing goes out of his mind, but maybe everything he experienced was kind of hitting it, hitting the surface of his brain like meteors of some sort. And what mm. he needed to do was find a way of destroying everything he'd seen so he didn't learn from it mm, that's mm. an interesting theory i mean and he does he is noticeably more agitated in a phoebe than at any other time in the mm. book all the other times that they talk about him being angry it's that sort of cold anger where he yeah. doesn't say things or you know he says something very polite but when he's in a phoebe he's shouting and ranting and getting real worked up yep so, yeah, maybe it has had an effect on him. It's um, like that idea of first sight and second sight that, you know, people have to work really hard not to see what is there and to see what isn't there. Mm. Maybe Vorbis has to work really hard not to learn anything from being in, you know, the home of Greek philosophy. Yeah. Yeah. Um, we've also got a question from Adam Edmonds. I think maybe we've covered a little bit in the general discussion, but it's traditionally it is gods that do the creating, but in small gods it works the other way around. Does the concept of gods drawing strength from belief that they arise from people believing in them originate with Soteri, or did it come from an earlier source? I know that Mr. Gaiman uses a similar idea in American Gods. So we've covered the first half of that, but the history of it, like, is this the first time? I feel like that's a separate question. Yeah, and it, it's definitely not. Um, it does predate Pratchett in fiction. I found some examples of some really early ones, well, early in terms of science fiction writing anyway, uh, for example, in 1940, there's a short story by Lester Del Rey called The Pipes of Pan, in which the god Pan buries his final worshipper. Um, and it's often actually in a lot of the early examples I could find, it's expressly the Greek gods. So there's this sort of element of magical realism where the Greek gods have survived into the modern world, but now no one believes them anymore. So they're, you know, they're losing all their power, um, which is, you know, a, a theme that you see in quite a lot of um Things like it, it, the Clash of the Titans film has elements of that in the more recent one with Liam Neeson as Zeus. <laughs> um, but yeah, so there's there's definitely precedent in fiction. Mm. And in reality, I mean, Enlightenment and post-Enlightenment, that was one of the ways in which uh, people explained why people had believed. There had been a need for a belief in something greater than them in the absence of science, and so humans had created gods in their own image in order to believe in them. And then, you know, Freud and Jung psychologically are, are into that as well. Why does humanity believe in gods? Because 
um, man has made God in man's own image. Mm. Mm. We've got one from Nicola88 via Instagram. What is your favorite Discworld god or goddess? I like the one that caters specifically to seamstresses because that is a good niche. Oh, they're so... It's a good niche. Uh, it's hard to pick a favorite. I, I have always been a bit of a fan of the, the Dun Manifest and Pantheon because they are such a glorious mashup and piss take of the Greek and Norse gods particularly, but then with a whole bunch of other stuff thrown in. So there's a lot of, I've got a lot of favorites there, but I mean, it's hard to go past Anoya. Um, goddess of things stuck in drawers. Oh, I've forgotten <laughs> about her. We've talked about her previously on the podcast. But there's just, I mean, there's so many. Oh, Heme the Hunted is one of my favorites. So he's like mm. an inversion of the hunter god because he's like mm. the god of all things that are like pursued by other people. Is Anoya under threat at the moment though with all this Marie Kondo phase of decluttering? Because if people are throwing away all of their like excess things, drawers or not, get jammed. Mm, yeah, but also if you fold up everything really small, yeah. they ha- they might have a tendency to uncoil and True. get themselves wrapped around draw mechanisms. She'll so adapt. I, I think she'll adapt, yeah. Mm. Mm. I like the mother goddess who is only referred to in here. Um, all the mother goddesses are really the one goddess, but you can do a lot with a padded bra. Mm. <laughs> so now there is a goddess I can resonate with. Mm. Yeah, uh, mm. that is great. Our final question is from Ilbion. What brackets, possibly underwhelming, end brackets, animal slash symbolic natural force, would your physical manifestation be? Oh, that's this is like, this is one of those, like, what's your Patronus style questions? Yeah, and I got it? a crap Patronus, and I can't oh. even remember what it is, so we'll leave that in the past. Just, mm. Mm. Okay. Well, I, mm, I, well, actually, I'm very fond of um, tortoises, mm. but I think maybe I would, I know what I'd like to be. I think I'd like to be a cuttlefish. Why? Just because I really like cuttlefish. Because hmm. they're smart and they turn cool colours. But then I wouldn't be able to talk to anyone because I didn't live for a year and I'd be in the sea. So when they when they change colours, is it like a camouflage sort of thing? Like are they subtle fish? <laughs> they can be. They can be. Uh, but they can also, you know, change colours uh, for signalling and uh, display purposes. Like for like traffic signs and stuff underwater. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. 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 So If it has to be an animal, I think mine would be a seahorse. Oh, a male or a female seahorse? Well, that's the thing. <laughs> they're, they're both or neither. Mm. Yeah. yeah. But if it could be anything, um, my manifestation would be the stereotype of the absent-minded professor. Oh. I yeah. like that. The stereotypical one that doesn't actually exist but, you know, yeah. lives in an office surrounded by piles of books and has to be reminded to dress before they leave the house. Or indeed in the original Disney film, to go to his own wedding. Mm. which at the start of the film he is forgetting to do for the third time. Yeah, that that would definitely be my manifestation. Yeah, okay. All right. I mean, this is a bit of a boring one, but I think I would perhaps have to say my cat, Asimov, or the resident Pratt cat, because he's wonderful, he's live like a cat is, but like if he needed to get stuff done, he definitely couldn't because he's easily distractible. Like if he's walking one way, you pick him up and you put him somewhere else, he's like, that is where I wanted to be. <laughs> and he'll start doing that or he'll start cleaning himself then he'll pause and he'll roll all over the couch and then like show you his belly you go to pat it he's like no so he doesn't know what he wants he wouldn't be a very good manifestation and you also wouldn't take him seriously if Mm. he tried to sort of hey you you'd be like sorry sorry buddy not today Mm. yeah look i think that brings us pretty much to the end of the podcast avril thank you so much for being a guest for us today. Thank you for having me. If people want to know more about what you're up to, how can they find out? 
Uh, so my blog is uh, revdocgeek.com um, or you can find me on Twitter at docavers. Um, or, of course, you could come to church any Sunday, 10 a.m. Williamstown Uniting Church. There you go. If you, if you, the best, the best seats in the house are in the church. I don't know where I was going with that. It, it's a very nice church, and we very seldom kill people. It is mm. very nice. Yeah, mm. I've never seen any torturing when I've visited you there. No, that's been very good. We will be back, of course, next month, and we've got some returning characters mm. because we are still in the Discworld next month. But Liz. which ones will they be? <laughs> could you give me a hint? I don't know. There could be some lords, maybe some ladies. <gasps> could there be lords and ladies? Perhaps. Oh, oh, it's true. We're going to be reading lords and ladies. We're going back to the witches. And who's our guest, Liz? Nadia Bailey. She's an author and a very good writer. Um, those two things do generally go hand in hand. They so, do. They yes. Do. Well, that's exciting. I'm excited about this because, like, you know, I love the witches and mm. uh, it's going to be a lot of fun to return to them. Although I am sad because it means we're more than we're more than halfway through the witches' books. But then we'll go on to the Tiffany Aching ones, I guess. Eventually. It's okay. You can read my terrible children's book about the horrible birds. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Okay. <laughs> I'll, I'll read that. Um, Forever and ever and nothing else. <laughs> Uh, but look, we do have a few important announcements that we'd like to share with you. Liz and myself will both be appearing at two different conventions coming up early in the year, uh, one of which is Speculate. Yes, the Speculative Fiction Festival for Victoria returns this year in 2019. Both Liz and I were guests last year and we will be there again. That's happening on the 15th and 16th yes. of March. Their website is specfic.com.au. We'll be on different panels there, but we will be appearing together at Nullus Anxietus 7, the Australian Discworld Convention, which is happening in Melbourne on April uh, or from April the 12th to the 14th. I think we'll most likely be appearing there on the weekend, not on the Friday. Find out more at their website, ozdwcon.org. Uh, I'm also doing a Melbourne International Comedy Festival show. You can find out more about that on my website. We'll also put a link in the show notes. It's called You Chose Poorly, and it's essentially a comedy experiment trying to determine why we as humans make all of the terrible decisions that we do. And that's a two-hander I'm performing with Atlanta Collie from the 1st to the 7th of April at Campari House in Melbourne. And finally, we'd also really like to send a big shout-out to all of our possible subscribers. We've been really overwhelmed by your response. Such a massive response in such a short period of time, and it, we are so grateful. It's only been a month. Um, and if you'd like to support us, you can check out our website for details. And, of course, you can always support us without giving us any money at all just by spreading the word of the podcast or leaving a nice review in iTunes or Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast directory you use. Until mm. next time, though, I think that's all we've got to say. Mm. Uh, I mean, I know that's a lot <laughs> of things. Um, but what's, I don't know, I, you know, I was trying to think about this, that there's a lot of sort of traditional things that you say in churches, but I don't ever think we picked up one from the Omnian religion. Uh, no. They didn't really have a, an equivalent of, um, you know, may the Lord be with you and also with you or whatever. Is there one we can think of? On the of? flip side, we've got the turtle moves. The turtle moves, oh. yeah. Well, but that's not quite them, is it? No, but it is good, though. So mm. until we meet you next time, may the turtle continue to move you. You've been listening to Pratchett, the monthly Terry Pratchett Book Club podcast with Pratchetters Elizabeth Flux, Ben McKenzie, that's me, and guest Avril Hannah-Jones. Pratchett is produced and edited by me with music by David Ashton of Sample and Hold Studios. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Pratchat Podcast and listen to past episodes and support the production of new ones via pratchatpodcast.com. Join the conversation for this episode using the hashtag Pratchat16. 
Pratt Chat is brought to you by Splendid Chaps Productions. We make entertainment for your ears, like the Star Trek podcast Rediscovery and time travel comedy series Night Terrace. To find out more, visit SplendidChaps.com.